take the lead? You gonna do it? You gonna be Johnny Cribs? If you're ready. I'm very ready. The Pink Smoke is back from Toronto. We ate the poutine. We saw the movies. We're here to talk about it. John Cribs here with Christopher Thunderbird. Chris, how you doing? Did you have a good time up in uh, the Great North? I did have a good time at Toronto this year. You know, did you, Johnny Cribs? You know, it's funny. We're getting to do this Toronto in review episode. We always do previews of Toronto and never do the the in review. And the reasons for that are, uh, for me, I was originally sent up to Toronto for work and I worried about um, violating embargoes or, or stepping on distributors' toes or something like that, or PR people's toes or the festival's toes. So we got out of the habit or got into the habit of just doing the preview and not doing talking about the movies, reviewing them, looking at them in any way, because it was going to sort of interfere with my professional life. And this year I said to you, John, I haven't worked at that fucking movie theater for how long? Eight years, nine years, 10 years? Uh, why don't we actually talk about the movies we saw? Don't you think audiences would be more interested to hear about the films that we've actually seen than to uh, to just hear about the things we're going to see? At the very least, to just you know, find out if some of our predictions, some of our hopes and dreams from our preview episode came true, to find out what we actually thought of some of these movies. Yeah, I think it's a great idea. Um, yeah, and I, to answer your question, I had a great time. As we said in the preview, we had the idea this year to go up for half as long and stay at a place twice as nice. Normally, we would go up for the full like 10 days of the festivals, you know, basically Wednesday night through the following Saturday. And this year we said, you know what, the schedule was pretty thin last year. Uh, the press and industry screen uh, schedule was pretty thin last year. Let's just go up for half the amount of time. We went up for more than half. We left on Wednesday this time. But boy, I am glad we made that decision because the P&I schedule was completely empty starting Wednesday, basically. I, it was a very thin schedule. I don't want to get too much into talking about sort of like inside baseball, like what the fuck is happening with the press and industry segment of this festival. But it does, you know, last year I felt like, hey, they're coming out of COVID. Um, you know, everything's going to be shaky. Uh, this year, there's there's the the SAG and writer WGA strike that's affecting things. But this, this festival... Um, to me, it feels like it's flying off the rails. If you told me that it's going to shut down within a couple of years, I would go, oh, you could see the signs of it, which is quite shocking for one of the world's premier festivals. But it, um, not necessarily in terms of its programming, although there are some aspects of it that we'll talk about, but it, it does feel like it's completely lost its um, bearing. It felt like the essential like festival to me uh, to go to that's why we consistently went even after i stopped being uh, a programmer and going to a lot of festivals um it felt like the essential festival it it definitely did not feel that way this year to me uh it definitely feels like something's up i hope it's just covid and and the strike and the 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 union strikes um knocking it off kilter but it did feel a little like whoa what is happening there <laughs> yeah every year it seems like the last few days of the press industry screenings is pretty empty and just in terms of people having you know come and hit the big parties and done the big interviews and then they kind of leave 
and so the second half of the festival is you know not as many people it feels a little bit like a dirt mall at that point comparatively but this year it wasn't just that there were less people there were less movies to see i mean usually way less movies you felt when you were like you felt cool when you hung out you know and you were the last people there and you're like i'm gonna see things everyone's taken for granted and i'm gonna discover something cool that nobody thought was going to be any good and nobody cares about because you stay for the whole thing you know and they just get more exposure to these films but this year there wasn't even that opportunity they weren't they were barely doing double screenings. There were just there were slots where there was literally one movie, one movie to see if you had a Preston industry pass, which is crazy. You usually have four or five movies. In yeah, any given and there were slot. there's like two hour breaks with nothing in them. It was very strange. Is it, it was a very strange in terms of that. But let's get into the movies. I feel like I, I don't know if any of that stuff is interesting to outsiders without us delving into it. Maybe we can do a Patreon episode that talks more about like our personal experience there and the experience of the festival. But I think we should just dig into the movies. And uh, because we each saw, again, because simply fewer movies were playing that were available to the press and industry, uh, people, we saw far fewer movies than we normally see and and definitely fewer than I intended to. Um, and so I forget how many I saw. It was like 23, 24, something like that. And you saw 30. Maybe I saw a little more than that, but that's about half of what I normally see at the festival. Um, and so to, but just to deal with that, still a large number of movies, we're talking about 50 movies here, essentially. Uh, no, how many movies are we talking about, John? Because we saw so many of the same things because there weren't options for stuff to see long story short we're going to be talking about a lot of movies so we gave them little groupings and pairings to sort of go through in sort of the broad picture here so we're going to take you through these groupings of movies rather than go through each individual film or do a sort of like best of the fest worst of the fest and and ignore sort of the middle class or interesting films and stuff like that right right when you go to a film festival that has you know this many movies even in this you know more minimalized kind of way you just can't help noticing, you know, the films that have similarities, similar themes, kind of connections. And I think that our grouping here kind of reflects that certain films have like a certain certain type, certain subgenre that I think, you know, these are going to reflect. So let's let's get into it. And it's sort of we're going to lead up towards, I would say, the more we talk, the more we get into the films that we really loved, that we're going to start with. Um, maybe the stuff we want to get out of the way. And the first grouping of movies was we saw, um, you know, uh, about, you know, four movies that were the indie wood kind of movies. These are movies that are very Hollywood in their bones. The new movies by Taika Waititi and Brian Helgeland and, you know, Lee Tamahori and uh, and have a sort of uh, essentially Hollywoodish feel. They have big actors in them. They're intended to be crowd-pleasing entertainments, but they're also independent films that are also angling uh, to be outside of standard Hollywood fare in some way. And so, John, you want to go through the the four movies? Just sure. Mention what they are and uh, like sentence plot description of them. So. One that I saw that you did not was Mother Couch, which is a film by Nicholas Larson and uh, is kind of like a very like early 90s surreal kind of black Amerindy. Yeah. Yes, exactly. About Ellen Burstyn sitting on a couch and everyone else is in the cast is trying to get her off the couch and she won't budge in this like antique furniture store is the setup. And it's, of course, all about, you know, 
family issues, deep-seated family issues that have to be resolved through this surreal crisis. Uh, the Taika Waititi film is a soccer movie that is called Next Goal Wins, and it can be easily be summed up by, it's the air up there, right? It's like the white guy goes to no, another no, country. No, 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 no. It is literally cool runnings. It's, yeah, about, I mean, it's yeah. about, you know, trying to, Air white guy there, coach cool takes, takes yes. terrible, you know, minority uh, sports team to compete in an international competition, right? Yes, that, that, it's it's that exactly type. the same. Yeah. Yes, that type of movie, which we haven't seen for a while. In fact, I was saying, do sports films even exist anymore? Like, do we have like, just like wearing its heart on its sleeve kind of make you stand up and cheer kind of sport movies these days? I can't really remember the last one I saw. This is definitely that kind of film. We saw The Convert, which is a, a New Zealand film by uh, uh, Lee Tamahori, which is uh, about the uh, Maori tribes kind of being pitted against each other at war by the um, colonizing Europeans who would like to see them, English specifically, Europe, uh, immigrants there to the country, who would just like to kind of, them to kind of wipe out each other. And Guy Pierce being there uh, in the kind of Kevin Costa role of like, you know, infiltrating these tribes and uh, kind of helping them and kind of learning their culture and kind of finding himself, redeeming himself through that. And then the finest kind is the Brian Hegeland film, uh, which is, uh, yeah, it's about a couple of uh, New England uh, fishermen who... Um, well, starring you know, like... starring the, you know, icon of tough, real blue collarness, Ben Foster. Yes, the rough and tumble Ben Foster. <laughs> This very, very deep New England accent whose little brother comes and wants to become a fisherman just like him, work on his boat and learn the trade. And uh, these guys get into some scraps, some scraps together. These guys. Some, some finest, scraps and scrapes. They get into some hot water. Some of the most bond. Fine, some, <laughs> some of the finest kind you can find is in this movie. So those are the film movies we're, we're cataloging under Indiewood. Uh, yeah. So I'll just start by talking about Mother Couch, which... As a movie, I forgot almost ten minutes after walking out of the theater. It's you know, uh, it's oh, I I had said in our preview, you know, hey, Lara Flynn Boyle is in it. She literally has not done a movie in a decade. That might be interesting. She does nothing. She just hangs around smoking, kind of watching what's going on. She's the you know miserable sister of Ewan McGregor, the main character. And I told you at, after I left it, uh, it seems to be like the new fad for these kind of surreal black indie comedies or a character to get on a makeshift boat in an impossible sea and just float off. And that's the ending happened in uh, Bo is afraid. And it happened in this movie. And that for me just kind of sums it up. Like this is the kind of movie that we're dealing with. I'm sure there's an audience. For it's, this kind of film. it's funny. It's funny when you talked about that, it made me, I, I'm just pulling this up here. Give me a second. It reminds me of Truffaut's famous, like he, he takes an incredibly huge shit on the red balloon. Right. Um, and, uh, uh, and it reminds me of him talking about uh, Albert Lauermos's movies in general, right? When you're talking about them getting on the boat and floating away. Let me pull up his his review just off of my um, shelf right here. And uh, he's talking about the ending of Lauermos's movies. Um, At the end of Crin Blanc, White Mane, the horse sinks into the sea with the little boy. In Balloon Rouge, the balloons carry the child off into the air. These endings are simply a means of getting rid of unwieldy premises while trying to give the impression that the idea has been pushed to the ultimate, right? It's these movies that don't know how to get rid of their premise and like, oh, we're pushing this to the ultimate there. That sums it up perfectly. That's exactly what the end of this movie does. Um, It's not, you know, without... It's moments, but it's really just a, a film that has 
no idea beyond quirkiness and weirdness and F. Murray Abraham playing a character who Ewan McGregor doesn't realize is twins, two different people, and, you know, slowly realizes that he's actually two different proprietors of this furniture store. Yeah. So yeah. I always think of it as it sounds like it belongs to the to the Little Miss Sunshine era of American indie movies with sort of dressed down Hollywood actors and quirky premises and all of that. I push it back even further and say that it's early 90s in the kind of like post Lynch era where people like weren't doing they're doing like Twin Falls, Ohio or Idaho. Right. They weren't like doing. Uh, movies that were exactly Lynch imitations, but they had like this this sinister, dark, weird quirkiness to them. It has yeah. definitely that touch to it. And this oh, will not be the first time I this will not be the first time I say David Lynchian uh, when we're talking about these movies. I know, which makes me distrust you because so few things are actually Lynchian. Yeah. Um, well, that's interesting because when I put this grouping together, it's sort of through these grouping together. We just got back from the festival yesterday. Uh, I was thinking, oh, I feel like I know what that is based on your description. You know, I was saying all four of these movies have what makes them sort of Hollywood, Indiewood, is they have a desire to be crowd-pleasing entertainments. They have a desire to play to their audience in some way, but it doesn't sound like that's what this is, is it? No, it's not. It's definitely trying to, you know, I, again, it's not a Lynchian movie, but it's yeah. like it's like that kind of post-Lynchian film from the early 90s, where again, you know, just setting up characters who are don't act like regular human beings, who are stubborn for no reason and say strange things and act like insane maniacs in an asylum is sort of the whole idea. And it's just yeah. kind of letting these actors kind of go wild with it. And, you know, McGregor is definitely game, you know, I'll give yeah. him that much. It's like, he he's, he's all in, he definitely tries to make this something interesting, but it just never has a shot at being interesting. Uh, well, the, what your foes say, they, you know, they ship, ship her off on a boat and that's it. Like that's well, the end of our movie. <laughs> well, let's jump into the next one that is intended to be a crowd pleaser. And as I mentioned in the preview, he's definitely fallen out of favor. And it was hard for me to gauge what the audience thought about this movie, which is Taika Waititi's Next Goal Wins. I feel like he's a filmmaker that people are really rooting for to fail. So when he does something so nakedly charming and crowd-pleasing and modest, it's hard for me to see what the reaction to it is. Did you like this movie? I did. I mean, it's it's fun and charming. What can I say? I mean, I should just say, I think we have the same position on Waititi, which is that he made three really genuinely good movies that are fun and, you know, I like to revisit. And so I can never really get, I get what people dislike and how he's fallen out of favor. This movie opens with him, literally. The first yeah. thing you see on screen is him playing a with character. With a goofy like, mustache. And it's like, oh no, he doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't understand yet. Yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. He and... thinks, oh, this will make people like it. And not this just turned off 95% of the people sitting in this room, yeah. you know? Yeah, but I think he just shows in this movie how how easily he can like make something like this fun. Yeah, this very like very bare premise that's cool runnings, you know, set in American Samoa, and you know, with his his team of like lovable idiots, you know, <laughs> friendly idiots that he loves to put in his cast. Uh, but I, I, you know, it works for me. I would just say the Hitler movie worked for me when I saw it at TIFF. You know, I'm sorry, yeah. it did. I, he just he knows how to make these movies fun. I, it might not be one that I go back to and watch ever again, but uh, for the ninety minutes that you know was on screen, it was I was delighted. Yeah, and I think what what 
antagonizes people about him is it's fair to compare this movie to uh two cool runnings two air up there two mighty ducks you know those are actually the films you can compare it to although it has a certain level of like knowingness and and uh maybe sophistication i i I get why he provokes people i don't think this is going to win anybody back over as opposed to if he had made hunt for the wilder people right now i think that would win people back over but i think this is just i i feel like this is going to antagonize the people that hate him more (laughs) and i can't even tell if it would be a hit or not it plays great it lands the jokes land it works um, it just, it plays really well. I think it's kind of lumpier towards the beginning. It's not, it's not a masterpiece of this very limited genre, but it's very likable and funny. And he knows, he knows how to bring, uh, the most charming aspects out of all of his actors, which is a really underrated quality. Every actor in this year film, you're like, oh, they're fucking great. You know, like just mm-hmm. everybody on screen. It's a bunch of people who seem non-professional or maybe limited acting experience. And it and it and it all works in that kind of way. This is not a film that like I would ever it's impossible to go to bat for it in any way. If somebody's like, that's stupid anti-art crap, and I detest its, you know, cloying sentimentality and simplicity and obvious jokes, I'd be like, yeah, hey, you know. It's yeah, it's it's, it's true. It does have Will Arnett in it. It is the kind of movie that would have Will Arnett in it, and that's that's a very certain <laughs> kind of of movie that I don't know you can defend usually. Yeah, but it also has Rachel House. It also has Ray Darby. I mean, it has all yeah. the usual like winning people from his cast. Sure, but it's like Jojo Rabbit, where it's like you try to take this movie apart, it will fall apart like a you know, house of sticks. You know, yeah. I mean, it will not stand up to scrutiny. You'll be like, you know, the, the tragic reveal in this movie, you probably said it exactly to John Candy's tragic reveal in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, yeah. you know. I mean, the manipulation and the uh, emotional stuff could not be any more obvious, but he yeah. does it well. At the end yeah. of the day, it's like he pulls it off. And so, I should also mention, it's it was very... was pleaser, like Jojo Rabbit was. It's fun to see Michael Fassbender in a comedic lead. It is. He's, he's good at it. He plays the straight man to a lot of stuff, but he does a really good job at it, uh, mm-hmm. too. And sort of, you know, Fassbender's great. And like we were saying, what has he been in? So I think this is something that's like... If you're secretly willing to admit that Taika Waititi is entertaining, go see this one and you'll be entertained. You know, if you just hate him so much because he was in Free Guy and made a Marvel movie, you know, stay away from this one. He's not you're not going to you're not going to be won over by it. Um, is, is it enough to is it enough to redeem Love and Thunder? No, but, you know, it's <laughs> but it's one of the better ones for sure. It's definitely better than that. Uh, we need to talk about I feel like the one that for me is sort of in running for worst of the fest, which is finest kind. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. Finest kind. You know, we, we were suckered in cause we were like, Oh, Hegeland, he's a, what he wrote LA confidential. He made play uh payback. So that's good. Right. What else did he do? Highway to hell. Bring anything else. Yeah. Wait, he wrote highway to hell. Really? He did indeed write Highway to Hell, 1991's Highway to Hell, a movie you and I both enjoy. Yeah. The great Christy Swansea. That explains why he has, yeah, Christy Boner herself. That explains why he's got cred in my my mind. (laughs) But I mean, I mean, you know, this was bad. It was very, very bad, but it was so much fun talking about it afterwards. You know, it is such a just obvious, cliched, 
by the numbers kind of blue collar crime story lame brained like something like like the dipshits we went to college with who wanted to write crime movies would write this kind of movie you know it's literally like that kind of shit i would write this kind of movie in college i mean it's just like that (laughs) level of but it's it's also like i don't know if listeners know i fucking cannot stand ben foster and i especially cannot stand that they're always casting him as like blue collar tough guys when he is just the most reeks of like self-serious la like movie child actor turned adult actor who wants to be taken seriously and they keep putting him in fucking blue collar tough guy psychopath like there's no one i am less afraid of getting punched by than ben foster you know what i mean and they keep putting him in roles where you're like oh i hope i don't get punched by that guy right it is just constantly and i was saying to you before we went in what happens with every ben foster movie the cast will be like like Tommy Lee Jones and Jenny Ortega and, you know, people that are like interesting up and comers and, and old actors. And then Ben Foster will be in and I'll be like, ah, you know, he's, he's like the 10th most famous people person in this movie. How, how much Ben Foster could there be in this movie? And he's always the second lead. Every single fucking time he's in a movie, Ben Foster is the second lead. And every time I'm like, I mean, he won't be in enough uh, in it enough to ruin it for me, will he? And then he's there being the fucking worst over and over and over again for it. It's funny because the lead of this movie, who's some actor that I don't know anything about him, um, was getting really bad reviews. Um, he was people were coming out saying, oh my God, this guy has just been, uh, you know, totally miscast. This guy, Toby Wallace, I have I have no idea what he's from. I have, I have no idea who this guy is. And, uh, and he was like, he's somebody notable in some way. I'm going to assume he's a TikTok dance star of some kind. But people were like, oh, he's completely miscast and terrible. He's actually perfectly well cast. And Ben Foster's horribly cast. I feel like I take crazy pills with people where it's like that guy, Toby Wallace, looks and acts like the blue collar people I knew and and grew up with in like farm country, Pennsylvania, you know, and Ben Foster is like the nerdy, like Ben Foster should only be cast as like the uptight husband you know, like the math teacher who sends the kid out of the class. These are the roles he should be playing. <laughs> um, and it's just, it's it's just, the plot is the stupidest thing in the fucking world. I just so many, this this was one of the, this is this year's Donnie Brook, where it was so bad, it became delightful for me. Where it was so <laughs> yes. bad, I just loved to talk about and think about this movie and enjoy picking it apart in a really unfair way with you and and shitting on it it was it was really that kind of film this year's donnie brook and not just because it's a portmanteau title <laughs> oh yeah what's the, what, wait, wait what are the two words that donnie brooks putting together i don't think that's what you mean with donnie, <laughs> Don, brook. donnie and brook right <laughs> um but no even if you can get past the ben foster you know being totally miscast as a tough guy this character he plays is an abject failure. He's like <laughs> looked up by his brother as like this amazing fisherman, and he like manages to fail every time he goes out to sea. The boat and, goes like, out to sail three times, out. and each three times results in disaster. Also, it's one of those plots where it's like the plot hinges on we need this money to get the boat out of the impound lot. 
but we're going to use the boat for the plan to get the money to get out of the impound. Ah, fuck it. Just take the boat. Like it's one of those <laughs> movies where like it can't even bother to think through its own plot. It's it's absolutely, absolutely ludicrous. And movie. it absolutely hinges on the romance of fishing, you know, going out and just being a blue collar sailor out there fishing in the northern waters, you know, and based on that it's like and the ben foster character being the like messiah of this lifestyle and yeah it's like, but that guy sucks that guy absolutely <laughs> sucks and he's the worst and you know you would never want to go fishing with this guy you would never want him to be your captain so it's crazy that like we're meant to we're, we're meant to go on this journey with these guys based on follow this guy's lead he knows what he's doing he absolutely does not know what he's doing for a second and yeah it's a fun movie to, to ridicule afterwards uh or Tommy Lee Jones. I hope he got a good paycheck out of it. He's the one. He's the one actor who at least manages to give some of this ridiculous dialogue a little bit of, uh, you know, weight just from his his classic Texan draw that we're all so used to. By now. I, I know it's you know what it, whatever. That's one of those movies too that's fun to see at a festival where it's worth talking about and people are there and like, is this a thing that's going to matter? You know, is this going to be a movie that matters? By the time it gets to theaters and out into the world, no one's going to think of this as a movie that matters. So this will just be some crummy movie that your dad or your uncle likes. You know what I mean? That is the life that this movie will lead. And, uh, and you know, by the time you get to it, dear general audiences, it'll be irrelevant. Um, but uh, let's <laughs> totally talk. Disappear. Yeah. Let's talk about one that works that I feel like people won't see that I really enjoyed, which was the Convert, the Lee Tamahori movie that we discussed a little bit about a um, a uh, a preacher played by the great Guy Pierce, who is a a. Um, we were talking Every, about this. Everything Ben Foster is not. This guy yeah. Papers. Who's who's brought out to a, a small colony, uh, you know, Western colony uh, in in the, the, you know, Maori Islands and bet- caught in between Maori tribes and sort of caught between these tribes fighting against each other and in their war. Um, and we were saying this after the movie, you were like, Guy Pierce is a, is a movie star. They need to get him more movies. And I was sort of disagreeing with that. I think Guy Pierce is a genuinely great actor but he's not a movie star. He needs to be given more acting roles, I feel like. I feel like because he's so handsome, everybody thinks, you know, let's let's put it in Snake Plissken in space and have a hit. But that's not really what he does. He's he's sort of like um he's he's more in the vein of like a Kate Blanchett. Like you don't want her to star in your Snake Plissken in space movie. You want her to star in your real prestige drama, you know? Although he's got he's got a very iffy track record, but he's fantastic in this movie. This movie plays well. This this movie really works. Um, whatever sort of narrative uh not too great ideas are with it. The filmmaker knows how to work through it and and make it play. And it's gorgeous to look at. It's one of those movies too, after you watch a bunch of movies at a film festival and so many of them look like junk, you watch The Convert and you're like, why does this look like a real movie when so many other movies here don't appear to be? And I'm sure it's a matter of budget to a certain extent, but it it's really does, it looks good, it moves good, it sounds good. Um, the performances, I would say, that's where the budget shows the mud most. The performances are variable, although I think the, the two main leads are, are quite good. 
Um, and it just it just plays. And it's one of those movies oh, that you think sure is building to a, a pacifist ending, but it actually builds into a like, no fucking war is necessary <laughs> ending in a way that's quite surprising and satisfying. Well, I mean, I'm sure there's a limited amount of people who can speak, you know, uh, the Maori language, you know, yeah. cast this movie. They obviously wanted to, have, you know, go for some authenticity there, I, I'm guessing. Uh, so, you know, they had probably had limited options there. But it's funny because no, has... I meant the uh, I meant the Irish lady is really terrible. Oh, yeah, she's yeah, she's not great. But she also speaks. In, I don't know. Maybe she was dubbed anyway. Um, but this maybe movie she also... was dubbed. What the what are you talking about? When she's speaking the Maori language, Jacqueline McKenzie. I mean, OK, she's so just what? bad. And even in English, because she speaks, she translates the, yes, the language yes, all, you yeah. know, a lot. So um, anyway, uh, this, movie, this is a movie, though, that, um, you know, is as cliche as fine as kind. It has like the kind of all the beats you'd expect. And when he says, like, we all know when he goes to the warmongering tribe, they're not going to be like, OK, let's sign a treaty and uh, we'll stop fighting. We know it's going to lead to a big, awesome battle at the end. That's totally fine. But like you said, this is just a smarter and more interesting and like better asked movie. You know, that's the reason that it works is, you know. Tamawari is like a, a real legit, like big epic director. And so that's what makes it move along. And that's what makes it fun. And you're absolutely right, though. I don't think it's got any new ideas that's going to like push it into the front of people's, uh, you know, radar. it's kind of like meathead black robe is how I think of it. It is a little meathead black robe. It's absolutely. kind of like, you know. It's kind of like black robe for the for the cheap seats, which is not. I mean, you're describing something I'm going to be into right yeah, there. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> nothing wrong with that. But it's just the kind of like mid level movie that's like. But but I liked it. I really liked it. You know, it was fun to watch. Yeah. Um, moving on, the sort of flip side, because at at indie at indie at film festivals, especially something like Toronto, you don't get the big blockbuster releases there by and large. Just to make clear, if you don't know how film festivals work, this this festival has hundreds of films. I'm going to guess like 300 movies. Does that sound about right? Mm -hmm. They're not showing like Shrek Four and the new Star Wars. They're they're showing big movies and some Hollywood movies, but but they're not showing that kind of thing. Like Oppenheimer is not going to be previewing at Toronto, you know. Um, so they do show those kind of indie wood movies that we discussed. And then the other main category is this kind of uh, vague category of like Euro art films. If you see enough of them they're all shot virtually identically is something that you will start to realize like, Oh my God, just as there's sort of like the Amerindie indie wood style, there's the Euro art style as well. And so we have this category of like six films. And since I, you saw most of these, John, I only saw one of these. I will let you, let you take them through. I tend to avoid these movies. I, I, it's really a kind of movie I don't like. Um, so you saw more of them than me. You just want to take us through the plots real quick of them for sure, them. Sure. Buy them. So, so we've got, uh, the can darling, the French film anatomy of the fall, uh, which is a story about a woman whose husband uh, takes a tumble out the window of their home and breaks his neck and dies or, or crushes his skull and dies. And uh, it all looks like very suspicious. And no one thinks he actually was drunk and fell out the window. They think she pushed him and had reason to do it. So the whole thing is kind of just uh, scrutiny of her and whether or not she actually did it. Last Summer is the new film by Catherine Brea, which is a family drama about a woman who is a lawyer and uh, lives in a very nice home with her successful businessman husband. And they have um, uh, 
adorable couple of adopted kids and his uh, older son, his teenage son comes to live with them and uh, things aren't going to go very well for her moving forward. The Beast is the new film uh, by... I think they go pretty well for her. Well, the, yeah, you know, things... <laughs> you, th- you think so? You think she has a good time the entire the entire movie? <laughs> I think she's got it under control, John, and you should back off. Listen, I know you like her. <laughs> and don't judge her, but I'm not... She goes I know, I'm busting your chops. Time. I'm busting your chops, John. Uh, next one is La Bette, The Beast, the new film by Bertrand Bonello which uh, stars Lea Sedo and is uh, kind of a uh, weird, surreal, uh, you know, Lynchian on that film. That's the one I'm going to talk about being Lynchian or at least trying to be uh, another film that I saw. Uh, and so I, I put homecoming on here thinking you saw it. I did not see homecoming. So if you oh. didn't see it, we're not going to talk about it. Um, but I told you so an Italian film that has a lot of actors. I like very much, uh, including um, Valeria Galino and, um, uh, Valeria Tedeschi. Uh yeah so I just saw it because I like the actors in it it's kind of a you know a five story multi-plot kind of all going into each other I I told Chris it was kind of I've never seen Love Actually but it felt like the Italian Love Actually to me just the way it did and then I saw another one called Arthur and Diana which is not worth discussing at all it's barely barely a movie but it's uh, just about a, a brother and sister adult brother and sister traveling with a toddler uh, across Europe and the toddler is in the entire movie and is just blabbing on like a toddler does throughout the entire movie. And it is almost, uh, I, I would have walked out if I had anything else to do. That's so the thing you... about the festival this year is you were, there was literally nothing else to see in certain slots. And sometimes I would look at them like that one and be like, I, I have zero interest in this. I'm going to go get a nice, a big sandwich. Um, instead and and would just go and like twiddle my thumbs instead sometimes this is a sandwich movie for sure the only thing no- worth noting about this is that it it started uh with german subtitles and uh went on for about five minutes and half the theater got up and left before somebody ran and was like sorry sorry we will we'll re- we'll start over it'll have the subtitles and it starts with like this fucking five minute shot of this guy uh just getting chips off of a shelf at a convenience store and so I had to watch that all over again. This guy just like loading his arm up with chips. It's like, great. I can't wait to watch the chip scene again. Uh, anyway, so we'll, we'll dismiss that one. Uh, but we'll, we'll <laughs> circle back. Anatomy Arthur and Diane, you've been dismissed. Anatomy of the Fall is a movie a lot of people loved. I saw huge love for it on Twitter. A lot of people said... Gigantic line for it. That's the other thing about the movies this year is there was a line stretching all the way from the Scotiabank down to hooters john that's mm-hmm. how huge that line was people were lined up uh two hours in ahead of time and still 160 people got uh, set sold out of it essentially didn't get right. in because there were so few movies and so you were having to line up super early at all of these movies this year mm-hmm. at any rate go on no it's funny when i left after an hour they couldn't believe it they were like you're, you're not coming back I was like, no. And they're, and they're like on their walkie talkies, like, you can send somebody up. Somebody's actually leaving because they thought that everyone was going to be so in love with this film. I, I stayed for an hour. Not, I didn't leave because I disliked it necessarily. I just left to go to another because another movie I would rather see was starting early, the Catherine Brea film. Uh, and everyone said it's a great courtroom drama. I didn't get to the courtroom part, so I probably shouldn't talk about this movie too much. I was not impressed up to that point. I didn't think it was 
anything original or new. It just felt like the same old kind of, you know, did she or didn't she sort of thing. And I didn't find it compelling. Maybe it gets better. I'm, you know, totally open to that possibility. Obviously, the title itself is, you know, trying to evoke Anatomy of a Murder, which is a classic courtroom film. So if it gets to the courtroom and then it becomes this amazingly written, incredibly textured and uh, brilliantly directed and this director won uh, the best director at Cannes this year, uh, you know, filmed it okay that I'm willing to see it, but I didn't see any evidence up to that point that it was going to be something I personally enjoyed. But I do know people who absolutely love if it. If there was a big twist to it, would that would that make you like it like more? There is a big twist, actually. Everyone said the ambiguity kind of is throughout. They want to talk to who's seen it. So I don't think it has anything in its chamber, like a secret, you know. Uh, uh, weapon that it bought. No secrets loaded seconds. up in its chamber. And uh, I told you so. What did you think of that one? I told you so. Um, I hate the way it's shot. It's, uh, you know, supposed to be a hot day in Rome. So it's like a very soft filter throughout, which is very unpleasant to look at. Um, the stories were mostly just kind of melodra- melodramatic, kind of forgetful stuff. But again, I love, you know, Valerie. Uh, 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 Valeria Golino. Big top peewee, no, hot shots. Valerina Bruni Tedeschi. Bruni thank you. Bruni Tedeschi. Uh, I love Valeria Galina. So, you know, I love that. I love just watching them. I'm glad that they're still working. I'm still glad that, you know, they are still great. So that part at least, but only it only makes up about maybe 30% of the film total and everything else was, you know, I just didn't get into it so much. But it was more of a movie than Arthur and Diane. I will say that much, you know, at least it had the feel of a real film and an actual script and uh, performances. So it was a sandwich movie, but it was like a more, uh, you know, acceptable sandwich movie, I think. <laughs> but uh, Chris, let's talk about last summer. Obviously this is one that we both liked. Loved it. Loved it. This is one of the highlights of the festival for me. This is uh Catherine Brayot. She hasn't made a movie in about 10 years and it's excellent. I don't know what to say about it. It's the traditional, very traditional Brayat theme of there's a woman who has a, um, wants to unlock an illicit sexual desire. And when she does so, she finds it's an annihilating force that she can't control. She has a, a desire that she wants to unrepress. And the act of unrepressing it is a destructive, violent, dangerous, uh, self-annihilating act. And it's it's very good. I, I you know on on the surface of it, it's pretty Harlequinish. It's pretty pornoish, honestly, the truth. Uh, but it's very good. It's just excellently acted. There's there's moments where, after you know her illicit romance with her stepson is discovered, where you feel like oh, there's going to be scenes of like you know the the Miranda Richardson and damage now, just people flagellating each other and crying. But it switches into like hyper gaslighting mode. She goes on the offensive <laughs> and is like, "What is wrong with you people for accusing me of this? This disgusting little boy." It's great. I mean, this movie's fucking fantastic. You know, somebody once asked me what character I identify most with in cinema. And I said, uh, any Catherine Brayot heroine. And I think that that's definitely this movie stands to that. Just, you know, uh, uh, just, just kind of like spiritually the self kind of self-destructive I am is the kind of self-destructive her characters are. And, and they're charming and delightful too, just like me. So there you go. Right, John. (laughs) Yeah. And a fantastic. Horrible people. Sometimes. 
sometimes innocent victims, but frequently horrible people. <laughs> and a fantastic lead performance by Leia Drucker, who we've mentioned before, has popped up in movies that I, you know, think deserve more attention, like In My Skin in the Blue Room. But she's been all over the place. And uh, it was great to just give her this movie after being practically every scene of this movie. And we're just with this character. And whether you you know, want to judge her or not, she is just, you know, a phenomenal. And you definitely feel you're definitely in on her story one way or another. Yeah, she gets to be funny. She gets to be mean. She gets to be very sweet. She gets to be sexy. She gets to be cruel. She gets to be victimized. She gets to be victimizer. It's just a full breadth of performance. It's it's. You know, obviously one of the best performances of the festival and a very sharply realized real character. That's one thing about Brayot is that um, her characters are, her women characters are very realistic. She resembles a real woman, you know, in a way that a lot of films that want to be about uh, womanhood or femininity or some way exist in like a mythical psychical space. You know, this is, this is you know, a very detailed, um, honest portrayal and performance. Absolutely. And just a great, just a very rich film with like subplots where, you know, the, the whole film is about justice, personal justice and like societal justice. She's a lawyer who, you know, at one point does something that she realizes she did the wrong thing. Like, you know, she yeah. thought she was doing the right thing and it was the wrong thing. Um, she has a sister who has like a complicated relationship with her. That's really interesting. and kind of comes into play later on. And, uh, and her own daughter getting more, and she has two adopted daughters, you know, uh, mm-hmm. Asian daughters. And one is getting more and more into makeup and dress up and like this sort of hyper lampoon of femininity on a like six-year-old child on a six-year-old child you know and so it's it's that kind of interesting stuff happening on the fringes of it as well yeah i mean this might even be worth like it's its own episode at some point there's so much to kind of talk yeah. about in this film that's just it's it's Catherine brea she really just like knows how to delve deep and make uh, situations not at all um straightforward everything is very you know can be construed as very am- ambiguous and and uh complicated always yeah complicated. not probably not her best but every bit as good as her best if that mm-hmm. makes sense you know yeah. yeah not her masterpiece but up there up there with the great ones definitely of a piece with all of her work you no know question. of yeah. her best work did not disappoint for sure in the beast the beast uh so the beast snow beast of the east uh the beast is a film again leia sido uh, she uh, is who could off. ever get who could ever get tired of seeing her in Euro art films. <laughs> it's almost as though her dad has she, the ability to get movies funded. She pops up strange, so right? We should it's all weird. appreciate her whenever she pops up in a you know quirky indie film or a Euro art film for sure because we don't get enough of that. Anyway, she plays a character who you know we see acting in front of a green screen we see here in like kind of a dopey historical drama that was very tough to get through those a lot of those scenes uh and then ultimately she is uh you know the victim of a stalker in la she's like an actress in la who this weird podcasting um pervert incel guy is like following her around and i said my, my main thought i was heard like, that huh, character was I... based on john cribs 
My takeaway from this film was that uh, so this is what a David Lynch movie would be like if you didn't have any some if you had a director who was nowhere near as talented as David Lynch because we get that there's weird surreal stuff going on it, it feels like Mulholland Drive it has that kind of like character switching in and out of different time zones the future the past the present and things like that where we're not we're not really sure what's going on and certainly you know like the LA lifestyle of an actress who's alone and vulnerable and things like that but it just there's never a moment where it feels like genuine the way it does where it's like you watch a David Lynch film and it's like the mystery here uh the sensuality is genuine you know this is a guy who knows how to make you feel things it's sourced from somewhere inside of him whatever it is yeah. it's coming from a sincere and real place inside of lynch the that stuff you know yeah. as as annoyed as i can get with how he uses obscurity to ameliorate moments of under of a, of a lack of underlying substance right uh i do think that a lot of it is just his what's beating out of him with it. And that's what his imitators general generally lack. It's what this movie lacks for sure. And I know our pal Marcus Penn is a big fan of Bonello. I, I haven't find, seen yeah. too many of his films, honestly, but it feels like there is like an artistry lacking in this movie that if you're just going to immediately turn to the movies, right. In terms of its influences, you're like, yeah, it's like Lynch without Lynch. Yeah. I find him to be null. I find him to not be a real filmmaker. And this is an example again of how, sort of weirdly scheduled and poorly run the festival was this year. I didn't see this movie because I had to go stand in line and hold us a place in line for another movie. So we sort of had to trade off, okay, one of us is going to miss a movie so the other can go stand in line and wait for a movie. And that kept happening with films, you know? Um, and even with this one, it was because you came over late. You weren't able to hold me a seat. The plan was that you were going to get there 20 minutes early and hold a seat for this one for me. And it didn't work out because of how badly scheduled and disorganized it was. And it was the kind of thing where this was the only film in its time slot, which again, in most other years, there's four or five films in a time slot to select between. And this one was the only film in its time slot and inexplicably it began five minutes before the last films in the previous time slot ended. So there was no way it was just very badly scheduled run yeah, this we're film. Talking, yeah, and, we're talking and, one of the bigger theaters, the IMAX theater. So there were plenty of seats. Yeah. And no another one anywhere, no one had anywhere else to go. And another thing that kept happening is they would line people up for movies like the here's the line for theater nine and they'd make you stand in line for 45 minutes. But then if people walked up to theater nine close to when it was supposed to open, they just start letting them in instead of the people who were in line. And this this kind of stuff happened over and over. And it's it's when things are disorganized with that many people and that many moving parts and that much stuff bleeding out and people are waiting in line for hours and getting sold out of things, it's infuriating to walk into the theater and see fucking John Cribb sitting in there already when you've been in line for an hour and say, what happened? And he says, I just walked up and went in. You know, that kind of stuff is actually like maddening to deal with, especially when it's John who makes me crazy to begin with. There were communication problems, obviously, you know, people in front of the theater didn't know there was a line coming right now, you know, they said open the theater and they're like, okay, and they started, you know, scanning badges, you know, they didn't yeah. know what was going on. So definitely yeah. there were some problems there for sure. People wouldn't know where to line up. It was very strange. 
uh, again, it felt like this year, it felt like this shit is falling apart. It's it also it really hard to, to predict which ones would have a line. You know, sometimes I would, you know, think, well, this is some tiny movie. I don't think there's going to be people waiting for it. Yeah. And then, and then they let me in, I'd sit there, and then suddenly people would start streaming in in a line. And I'd think, oh, there was a goddamn line that they didn't tell me about. Yeah. Um, so sometimes it was hard to gauge, but obviously when you know it's you got a movie like the Miyazaki you, you're going to know you got to get up early got to get in line and make sure to get into the theater well but that's the Miyazaki played at 9 a.m and I got there I went to the gym every morning and just to be safe I got out of the gym at 6 15 and I walked around the corner to see if there was a line and at 6 15 um that makes I guess I went to the gym at like 5 30 I didn't go to the gym for five minutes um there was already like 10 people in line at 615. Yeah. So it was like, oh shit, John, I gotta get here in line two and a half hours early to get into this movie that's only showing once and won't have an opportunity. It, it was it, that kind of stuff is not super that's fairly unusual. And for a popular movie to need to line up early is not a huge tragedy. But when it's everything is like that, improbably long line, shockingly early and again the guys who are running the theater kept coming out and being like this isn't the official line the official line doesn't start until 8 a.m and there's like 50 to 100 people in some unofficial line it's like it, it just felt the film the festival felt incredibly badly run this year and for years i would have said it was the best run festival i ever went to i think that's also what was striking about it to me is to me it was always the high watermark of professionalism smooth running great programming well put together balances between oscar contenders and interesting uh art films and and that kind of stuff it was sort of everything that mattered was there and it just feels like across the board it's programming it's execution it just feels like a mess and i'm really hoping it's just for covid and the strike that make it a, a huge mess but it it does feel like there's just there's just something wrong with it now it's just it's just feels like it's fallen apart to me that that was definitely the moment that i had to laugh out standing in line early for um, next school wins and having the guy come over and say, this is not the official line for theater two. Yeah. You know, just so everyone knows this is not the official line. And then when they're ready to open up, it's like, okay, this is the line for theater two. This is the official line now. Okay. Yeah. So now we're the official. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. And just, just a mess. And the volunteers are all great. You know, this is not a matter of like the low level blue shirt volunteers being bad. They were just as good as ever. They're full of Absolutely. Torontoans. You know, that's sort of, I think, been the fill the festival's uh, trump card. It's secret in its back pocket is that like, it's run from a bunch of people from Toronto. So they're all super nice and affable and polite and clean and line up properly and don't argue with anybody. You know, it's it's got the the Toronto Canada spirit, the Toronto spirit that uh, I think has actually been like its secret weapon for a long time. But something about the 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 upper management of this thing, it feels like rot. It feels like rotten wood at the top of something to me with this festival. Well, let's get back into the movies. Yes, we're to talk about. So and then this next part, I definitely want to kind of like go through it quickly because 
I don't want to be on either side of this A24. Well, but but I was just, let me serve it up to you. I was going to say the next category we're going to talk about is the A24 movies. Because we talked about like the Amera indie films, the Indiewood type films, and the Euroart films. And then there's this other sort of third category, which is like the A24 type stuff. And they might be distributed by A24, they might not. And they're sort of... They're they're sort of they're neither like Indiewood or Euroart. They're sort of somewhere in between. It's it's like its own category that people are like aiming for with it, but it's a very distinct sort of brand. And that's the movies that are in this next category. And I didn't see either of them because uh, you know, again, I just they didn't look interesting to me at all. Yeah, no. Um, so the first one's Dream Scenario, and I know I've already kind of raped you know Bo is afraid over the coals a little bit um, but I just all these A24 movies somehow kind of miraculously have this similar feel where even if you don't know it's an A24 you're going to know it it is just because even what was it Waves a few years ago that film that they were kind of trying to make their big kind of award movie and didn't really do anything it feels like dream scenario like it feels aesthetically the same even though it's made by completely different people but as an A24 movie somehow there is just a feel to it to the look where it feels like do they bring in their own people to like do the production design and the cinematography and the editing because there's definitely a similar feel to it and it's because it's become such a brand you know it's it's hard to like get past that and move on to the artistry in some of these films dream scenario is nicolas cage and it has like a pretty interesting setup where he is this like fuddy duddy tenured professor who has never really done anything with his life. He's never really written the book that he's wanted to write about, uh, you know, the society of ants and things like that, socialization of ants. And he starts appearing in everyone in the world's dreams, just kind of walking by them as something terrible is happening to them and just kind of being in the dream. So everyone starts recognizing him, become becomes a celebrity and it has some interesting implications where it can kind of go from there, but then it kind of decides it's going to be about can- cancel culture and, you know, judging people who you don't know and things like that. It comes less interesting, but even if it kind of had followed a track of kind of going into weird different places, just the dream sequences themselves, every time everyone remembers their dream, it reminded me of um, uh, Talk to Me, you know, the horror film that A24 did this year. Like it felt like those horror movies that they put out where it just has this very arty airy kind of quality and i'm not saying it's good i'm not saying it's bad it's just weird that you can identify these movies so quickly and i kind of don't know what to think about it because i think there's also a lot of young filmmakers who now these movies have been around a decade who have grown up on that style and so you have a lot of young filmmakers sort of imitating it in some way whether consciously or, or subconsciously and i think a lot of um sort of prestige and streaming TV type stuff imitates the look and feel of it as well and the sound design. I I, um, I don't know if they're the source and origin of it or if we should be drilling down more into specific filmmakers associated with, with the A24 style. Uh, I'm also not as don't pay as close attention to modern movies as a lot of other people. So if you made me say, you know, name 28, 24 movies, I'd be like, I, I, are there that many? Could I name five? I don't know. I can name the the films that are sort of in that neighborhood, you know, uh, sure. but I'm definitely, I don't know that I know the brand well enough to say that, but it's definitely not my kind of thing. And the other one you saw was Dick's the musical, which oh, was oh, talking about this. Real quick. Oh, I thought you were done. No, it's okay. Dream Scenario has 
they all have this very specific sound effect. It's yeah. whoop. It, it's the same sound effect, whether it's like someone getting hit by a pillow or getting punched in the face. It's just this whoop sound effect. It's weird. And the reason I see so many A24 movies is because they do so many horror movies. And I try to see lots of horror movies. That's like the one kind of genre that I'm still interested in new film is I'll go to a theater to see a horror movie because I like going to see horror movies. And that's, you know, I guess that they know that that's like a good market and that's the reason they keep putting them out. So that's why I'm more familiar with them than you are. But yeah, the second I... movie I was going to say is this year, every year, there's a movie that people are, there's a ton of buzz about and people are excited to see. And it's like, that's going to be great. Uh, and then once it's seen, it disappears and you never hear it of again. That is the next one you solved from this yes. year. They'll get excited enough to do an event party at Hooters, but then the next day, it's just back to wings and football. Uh, Dick's the Musical owes an apology to comedy, to musicals, <laughs> to everything. I, it, just, it just could not be a worse made, worse put together film that is completely unfunny, completely irritating, and completely in love with itself. It's a film about two men... And the movie makes a point of like, you know, pointing out that these are two homosexual actors who wrote the movie together and they are playing two womanizing jerks, but very, very, very flamboyantly. The joke is that they are clearly not heterosexual. They are actually gay. That's that's the joke. And and that is an example of the kind of jokes you find in this movie where all the music, all the songs sound exactly the same. Uh, the sets are all terrible. I guess they could just say that was on purpose. We wanted to make it like a, a studio musical with sets, uh, but just everything about it, and every scene goes on 10 minutes and it is excruciating. So going into it with the lowest of standards, somehow even those standards were not met. Uh, this was definitely the worst one I saw uh, at the festival. Just awful. Oh, interesting. Interesting. And it's, we should mention it's by the director of the Borat movies. There were this, this is, this is one of the hyped movies that flops so hard. It feels like you'll just never hear from it again. It, it feels like one of those movies that was like a hot ticket and hard to get into. And then just, just flops so hard that you will just, it'll be gone from the face of the earth. But I don't know, you know, I'm sometimes bad at, at predicting that. And sometimes things will play really well at a festival like Richard Iodi's submarine killed at Toronto one year and then disappeared. And then there's been movies that have seemed like, oh, that's a festival hit and you won't hear much from that ever again. It's the kind of thing that plays well at a festival, but won't play out in the real world like Moonlight, right? That become super juggernauts in some way, right? Right. Um, and so that always happens. So, but if, if, you know, this movie is on a very standard trajectory of like the hot ticket sounds great. And then when people see it, they're like, oof, you know, and that oof is the last word ever said about the movie. It can't do anything but disappear. These two leads are no Sasha Baron Cohen. They are just completely flat, boring, unfunny, uh, forgettable dudes. So I would be shocked if either of them had any kind of celebrity after this film, any kind of an, an audience flocking to this kind of movie. Maybe they're, maybe they're TikTok stars already, John. You never know. Could that's be. That's what I've learned from the modern media landscape is that if there's someone charisma deficient 
that somehow is well known. They're they're famous on uh, doing little dances and characters and funny lip syncs on TikTok. So now we're going to move out of those sort of broader categories to sort of pairings and things we noticed that were running themes throughout the fe- festival. And these next two, we saw two documentaries that are basically they're about famous artists, but what they're really about is how much these famous artists fucking hated their dads. And that was the Sylvester Stallone documentary Sly and Errol Morris's new Jean Le Carre movie, The Pigeon Tunnel. And uh, really, would you, what... have, would you have predicted Sly and The Pigeon Tunnel would have so much in common <laughs> going into these movies this year? No, it's amazing how much they're about these looming father figures in the artists' lives that they can't get out of the shadow of and how much their dads seem to be either actively rooting for their destruction in the case of Sly or gleefully having their son be collateral damage to all of his scams in the pigeon tunnel. Um, they are, they're surprisingly similar and, you know, I, I'm not going to, you know, pull a fucking Wesley Morris and be like, the thing people don't know about Sly is that he's actually secretly articulate. You know, the thing people don't know about Rocky is that he actually loses in the first one. This fucking that's a great that's a great impression (laughs) um is that uh is that he they're both super articulate they're both super thoughtful they're both very specific sort of prickly pair personalities who are uncompromising in their own way as well and a lot of their specificity and need to define themselves comes from the relationship with these overbearing fathers who are sort of crushing the life out of them. And that is interesting. They are interesting to put next to each other. Um, Pigeon Tunnel, I really, really liked. It's very much an Errol Morris movie. Sly is is not a great movie, but what were you going to say? I didn't mean to cut you off. No, I was just going to say it plays into the artwork in ways that are surprising that Rocky chasing after you know Mick, you know, to eat to, yeah. to, or yelling at him through the door rather before as he's going down the stairs is you know Stallone trying to shout at his father, you know, or the uh La Carre, the John Carre, the subject of the pigeon tunnel, uh having uh, a whole book. I think it's the spy master, I can't remember which one it is. The that's perfect spy autobi- perfect spy. Yep, that is yeah. perfectly uh autobiographical, you know, portrait yeah. himself and his relationship with his father. Yeah, it's it's where, interesting. Where unlike Stallone, he kills his surrogate self at the end of the, <laughs> He doesn't uh, go and put his arm around him and bring him back in. Right. No, it's it's fascinating. It's and it's two movies that you will leave thinking like I did not realize that I was going to see a movie about how this guy's dad is a piece of shit. (laughs) That is really both of those movies. Pigeon Tunnel is very much an Errol Morris movie. You know, in the preview, we talked about worrying that it would be another Elsa Dorfman uh, where he just sort of goes and makes a regular documentary and follows an artist around with a camera and does some interviews with her and not have the stamp of his personality. This is, this is almost uh, a parody of Errol Morrisness, but it's great. It works really well. I, I agree with you that it's not um, major Morris world shattering stuff, but I, I think I liked it a, a bit more than you, at least. I thought it was very, very good. I really liked it, but I also understand your perspective of um, it's a less contentious subject. It's it's uh, a, a 
a person that he seems to be personally friends with. So the interviews are more affable and it's an adaptation of um, Le Carre's autobiography, The Pigeon Tunnel. It's not necessarily its own separate independent documentary. It's supposed to be an adaptation of the book in some way. Um, whereas Sly is completely paint by the numbers. It is the most basic thing you can imagine. If you have even a passing interest in Sylvester Stallone, everything in here is old hat. The people they bring out for the interviews are like Wesley Morris and Quentin Tarantino, just like the guys that are in every fucking documentary that just like it it will feel um, it feels like, you know, this is the kind of thing that would have been a DVD extra in the DVD era. You know, well, you, know it, the, you know, the thing about Stallone, though, Chris, yeah, his acting is comes deep inside. Yeah, very deep inside. That's where it comes from. Yeah, people don't think of they think of him as like an action guy, but he's like a writer and a very serious artist who liked Arthur Miller. The film critic they have talking in this movie just says like the the most like. Sylvester Stallone 101 and stuff like, let me, let me tell you about the Beatles attitude. He's one of those guys. <laughs> That's just, oh, he's awful. He's all, and he's in every documentary now. I have no idea why they pick him, but um, it's just, it's, it's just, it couldn't be, if you know anything about Sylvester Stallone, you know, every story in this movie except for the like stuff about fucking Hayden, his dad. So that's what really stands out. Everything yeah. else is just so paint by numbers, boilerplate stories you've heard a thousand times. You know, they couldn't get any extras at the ice rink in Rocky. Did you know? But it turned out even better. Just just everything you've, you've heard. And then the comedies, they didn't work so well for him. So he went into the action movies and then tried to make a comeback with Copland. Great. You've just seen Sly. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's just, I don't think there's a single revelation in there. If you're a big fan, you should see it. Cause the stuff about his dad, I have not heard him talk a huge amount about that and about Frank also his brother. Um, that's mildly interesting and it's a big part of the film, but, but the rest of it is very uh, primer level stuff, very primer level stuff. Yeah, yeah, the the polo stuff, you know, you probably may not have heard of before, and it ties right <laughs> into his father, who at the height of Sylvester Stallone's uh, fame in the early 90s, still tried to knock him off his horse during yeah. a, a friendly polo match, what, for charity or something like that? Yeah. So... That's interesting stuff. And I, I did like Well, did after like he had bought a polo team so he and his dad could play a polo match together at the high level. That's, <laughs> yeah. the, that's the context. Still his took a dad cheap shot at him. Cheap shotting him and knocking him off his horse and almost killing him. Yeah. Um, but I did like the Pigeon Tunnel very much. I mean, Locke Carrier is a really uh, charming individual who tells great stories. And so I've seen lots of interviews with him, uh, especially this last year when we did you know, a big spy movie. Uh, podcast i you know read up on lacare and watched a lot of interviews so i knew he was going to be like an interesting and urbane fellow you know and that that's what i got you know i got what was on the tin for this one and i you know yeah. appreciate it uh didn't wasn't a challenging Aaron morris film but uh yeah i would say as much as sly you know if you like sylvester stallone you're gonna enjoy watching this the pigeon tunnel is like you know if you like morris you're gonna like this movie I, yeah, I think that you will like this movie uh, if you, on almost under any circumstances. It's hard for me to imagine anyone with even 2% inclination to see this movie not enjoying it. 
I, yeah. I think it works well. It plays well. It moves fast. It's interesting. It's funny. It's uh, has pathos. It has emotion. It has surprises. It has intelligence. It's it's a, it's a genuinely good film. It's a genuinely good film. Uh, and the only other doc that either of us saw was um, Raul Peck's new documentary, Silver Dollar Road. He's most famous as the director of Lumumba and um, I Am Not Your Negro. Uh, I did not see this one because, again, I was waiting in line holding a place for us to get into another movie while you went and saw this. Uh, you sort of indicated to me that it was not even worth watching. I find him to be a little bit of... Um, not a super interesting director so it did not surprise me am i am i categorizing it correctly standard doc stuff is standard what doc best. stuff is the categorization for mm -hmm. sure i mean nothing wrong with it it tells a compelling story i mean uh you know uh black families in the south you know uh having their land taken away from them is you know a real life thing that is infuriating and it's legal stuff is interesting but it's you know just it's a doc it's a one-sided doc where it's like you know you know who the heroes are you know who the bad guys are uh you know it, it plays out very much by the numbers so yeah it's standard doc absolutely yeah and uh so we'll move into the next category it's like i keep looking at the clock and trying to gauge how long this is all going to take you fine with the three-hour episode johnny crabs <laughs> um the next category is we talked about in the preview episode there were a lot of films that were um directed by actors in this festival and i saw you know three or four of them the we're going to talk about a pair which were debut films uh, debut di directorial debuts by actor auteurs, which were Anna Kendrick's Woman of the Hour, which is the movie about the um, woman who appeared on the dating game uh, and uh, the bachelor suitor that she selected to win the game and go on a date with turned out to be serial killer Rodney Okala, um, genuine creep. <laughs> and the other one is Pool Man. Um, Chris Pine stars in a movie that is uh, very overtly and self-consciously like uh, a dingbat version of Chinatown. Or as I said to you, the, the idea seems to have been, what if you made the big Lebowski, but instead of detesting all of the characters, it liked them. And yeah. that's what that movie is. It's, it's kind of like LA loser detective story done almost in air quotes you know playing playing on all the cliches of the genre but instead of finding ever holding every character in contempt to be ridiculed and laughed at it had genuine affection for every character and those were the two debuts and they were received i think on opposite ends of the spectrum pool man uh, i think it was indie wire called pool man the worst film ever to play at a major film festival which surprised me, but that's that's the sort of consensus on it, that it is just so unbelievably bad. And Woman of the Hour got generally good reviews, that it was, you know, surprisingly well-directed, amazing that she directed it. You know, the, the sort of, you pointed out on, on social media, the sort of condescending, like, oh, can you believe she directed this movie all by herself? Isn't that, isn't that cute? She did like a real movie, like a grown-up girl, as opposed to like, oh, that was really well-directed and interesting put together and i i feel like announces an, an interesting directorial voice we'll see where we go where she can go from there with it but it definitely feels like a real movie and somebody that should be directing other movies i'm curious to see what else she does yeah and she's also very good in the movie in the lead role so you know that's <laughs> you know a total uh, uh total grand slam for as far as i'm concerned i mean it's 
a very we, we've already talked about this in the preview episode that this is a very interesting story real you know real life story uh that this uh guy was a, a genuine monster who terrorized uh both coasts new york and 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 california uh and just did horrible things to his victims and he was on the dating game <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know and that's it's sort a of weird thing and they obviously fictionalized a lot of it um but it's but but for the most part it worked i think yeah you know, I think and all it the inter- elements worked for the film it intercuts his crimes with the story of the woman going on the dating game being a struggling actress and all that so there's a heavy element of like actual brutal violence and sort of thriller elements to it as well that i didn't know if that was going to be in there or not when you know sitting down i said do you think we're going to see any murders and the answer is oh no yes you know <laughs> like, like right away first scene yes <laughs> and uh and it's and it's like it's I I dare say that movie's like cool, like that movie's mm-hmm. references and ideas are like hip in a way that I was like that's pretty cool, you know, like yeah. like making Linda Mann's references and things like that, um and I yeah I liked it. It's very funny. It's scary and brutal. It's thoughtful. She hired a or I don't know if she hired him, but the script was written by a playwright, and it's a very well written uh script it's a very well-written movie and she handles the direction quite well there's fabricated elements of it that don't necessarily work the greatest um that that i think it would have been just as powerful without those fictionalized elements Mm -hmm. but it works it plays as they say it's funny when it needs to be funny it's scary when it needs to be scary it's thoughtful and upsetting when it wants to be she's she's in command of the movie in a way that uh, i felt like oh that's great i want to see what else she does that's was, really what it came yeah, out. I was ready to be kind of turned off by the, you know, kind of obvious modern feminine approach to, you know, this material, you know, yeah. this character. But Projecting honestly, the present onto the past. Yeah. Yeah. But honestly, it's shocking that the dating game is something that was around in the 70s, you know. <laughs> yeah. That was a really antiquated thing where they obviously had like these, you know, the, this whole thing was like, oh, you know, let's just sexualize this poor girl for half an hour is sort of the whole idea of the game. And so to introduce a character who's like, well, I'm not, I'm not about that, you know, as much as it's like, that's kind of a modern attitude is still like, but it's a really interesting kind of take on that at the same time. So, and like you said, it plays. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Pool Man, you know, I, I found it to be, it's first, it's a cast that's Annette Benning, Jennifer Jason Lee, Stephen Toblowski, uh, 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 um, did I say Danny DeVito already? Clancy Chris Pine, Brown, Clancy it? Brown. It's got a bunch of Jennifer Very Jason wise. Lee. Yeah, yeah, really likable actors in it that I specifically like a lot. And it's, and it's so affable and good hearted that I feel like the people kicking the shit out of it. Like it feels a little like, come on, man, there's something wrong with you to go after this movie so hard. You know, like it's, it's definitely not a good movie and it does not play at all. I would say 90% of the jokes fall completely flat and it's very quirky. It's one of those overly quirky movies. Uh, Although I I will talk about it later. It has a lot of similarities to Richard Linkler's Richard Linkletter's Hitman, which was very well received and sort of, I don't see a huge amount of difference between those two films as far as how well they played and how goofy they get and how well-written they are. They're both co-written by the lead actor, which I think the lesson of woman of the hour is, 
hire a fucking playwright to write your movie. Don't co-write it yourself and create a character for you to star as. You know, just don't, just get a real writer for this, my friends. And, um, but it's like, you know, it's very self-consciously overtly Chinatown and it's Big Lebowski down in its core. I even think they use some of the same locations in it. Um, and it's, it's, it doesn't work. It doesn't play, but Chris Pine is incredibly likable. The actors are incredibly likable, uh, to go after this movie really, really hard feels like, what are you doing? Like, what are you trying to prove? Like there's real, there's real worthless (laughs) things, you know, that, and Chris Pine is a movie star. You can put him on screen and he's compelling to watch. And I think that he plays the character with a sincerity and a good heartedness that I actually find winning. It's hard for me to think negative things about this obviously bad, no good failure of a film. I found it, I found it totally harmless. You know, it was, (laughs) there really was nothing to go after. I, I mean, I think it was trying to kind of tap in. It's clear that Chris Pine is fans of certain things. I felt like this particular group of actors he was going for was almost like a ragtag, like a charming ragtag squad, like an Ed Wood, maybe like the crew from Ed Wood. He was trying to just have like a charming all-star cast and kind of go through this film without really being too serious. Obviously, I think he's seen the nice guys and, you know, wanted to go for that level of like, kind of like, good-natured okay fun comedy that could suddenly turn serious you know and i th- really think the scene between him and uh Tobolowski, uh you know which one i'm talking about yeah is very good like is a really well done scene so it's not you know without you know it manages to do some things while on the whole being kind of a kind of a whiff kind of a fluff yeah of a thing well it's very sincere and earnest movie ever to play at film festival it's not even the worst one that played this film festival yeah it probably wasn't even the worst one i saw that day um yeah it feels it feels strange to go after it it feels very uh very very strange in some way to to really go after that movie but let's let's have woman of the hour and pool man serve as the segue into our next section oh no i know what i was going to say about it which is that um you know, I always say that like a band is like over, like their golden era ends when they make their album that's quote unquote about Los Angeles. And this movie <laughs> is one of those movies that's about Los Angeles in sure. some way. And it's just like, oof, they're just, it's a bad genre. About Los Angeles is just a, a bad genre because it means you have you're just, you know, you're at the sort of pinnacle of success and you have nothing to say except there's this machine out here that stinks and I don't love being a part of it. And it crushes a bunch of delusional people in it, you know, and I'm lucky to have gotten out alive and it's not fair what it does, but like I'm sitting in my hammock, you know, and that's what those things are always about, you know? Um, uh, And that'll segue into our true story section, quote unquote, true stories, because Woman in the Hour is based on a true story. Um, There were three other movies that were that we saw that were based on true stories. I think I saw all three of them. You didn't see any of them. Technically four, because Next Goal Wins is probably the most. Oh, yeah. The real life true story movie we saw, at least, you know. Yeah, the the final titles that kind of, you know, show real people and everything. Well, Hitman and Dumb Money and Wildcat do that, too. So not Wildcat doesn't do that at the end. But the three that I saw were um, Dumb Money, which is about the um, the the stock squeeze, the short squeeze put on put on GameStop stock where you had a bunch of um, sort of penny stock day trade buyers 
buying up the stock of um, GameStop in order to fuck over Wall Street short sellers who were trying to put GameStop out of business and then reap the profits when GameStop collapsed, right? And it's a little guys versus big guys movie. And it's about the Redditor behind Wall Street Bets or, or who was uh, featured on Wall Street Bets that was sort of buying the stock and, and rallying the, the short squeeze on it. Um, played by Paul Dano. And then you have Hitman, which is Richard Linkletter's movie about a um, a college philosophy teacher who is uh, helping with, he's also a, like an electronics buff and he's helping the police um, set up microphones and cameras for stings in which hitmen, fake hitmen are contracted and then they arrest the people for contracting the hitman. And he has to step into the role of hitman uh, when the, the undercover cop who's been doing it is uh, put on suspension and he takes on the role of this undercover fake hitman in sting operations and gets so into the job. Um, and then the last one is Wildcat, which is about Flannery O'Connor, a favorite author of You and Me, John. It's about the moment in her professional career in which her first novel, Wise Blood, is rejected by um, the publisher that she thinks is going to publish it. And she has to return home to her town in Milledgeville, uh, Georgia, where um, lupus is going to start to ravage her body before it eventually kills her at age 39, right? And it's about that moment when sort of her novel's rejected and she finds out the lupus is going to get her and she's got to move back in with her mom that she detests. And it's it also features uh, her conceiving of the short stories that she's writing. And so the, you have these little short stories, short movies of the short stories within the film, sort of films within films, her sort of fantasies of her short stories. And the the gimmick with that is that Maya Hawke, who plays Flannery O'Connor, uh, and her mother, who's played by Laura Linney, play the characters in all the short stories as well. They're sort of cast in those roles. Um John, is there any reason you didn't want to see these three movies? I know you have a extreme aversion to Ethan and Maya Hawke and you love Flannery O'Connor. So that kept you away from Wildcat. Was it just scheduling reasons that kept you away from Hitman and Dumb Money? You also hate all of the actors in Dumb Money. Yes. As I said on a preview, yeah, that cast of Dumb Money was constructed to keep me away from it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Hitman only played against the Wiseman movies. The only reason I didn't see it. Yeah. Um, these these movies, uh, what I would say about them, it's interesting. They exist sort of along of a spectrum of like the truth of their story and the true storiness of it. The reality of their stories is sort of uh, demonstrative in their approach. On one end, you have Hitman, which when it gets done, there's an in title credits explaining about the guy. And one of the title credits is like, wait, what? If that's true, what the fuck is this movie? What part of this movie is true, right? Uh, because all of that negates 80% of the plot right there. Like what, what the fuck actually happened in this movie? And I was trying to research it. The problem is it's based on a guy named Gary Johnson. So looking up Gary Johnson was very, very difficult because of the fucking libertarian presidential candidate, but that's what comes up for Gary Johnson. Um, and I eventually realized it was based on a Skip Hollinsworth article, like Richard Linkletter's movie, Bernie. Skip Hollinsworth is like the great uh, true crime uh, magazine writer of our area, he writes for Texas Monthly, and he is like the guy. He's the best, 
um the shit he wins championships no he's he's fucking phenomenal and i realized that oh that that article i know really really well i know the hitman that he's talking about and it's so unrelated i never would have put two and two together i have no idea why richard linkletter made this movie he's made a couple movies about true crime newton boys bernie and this based on true stories and each time i'm puzzled because he seems to have no interest in crime. I was shocked to read an interview with him where he said that he's like, uh, uh, like John Waters, he goes and just sits and watches trials to look, watch the criminals and soak it all in. That shocks me because he seems to have no interest in crime. And the main problem with this movie is that it really doesn't want to deal with crime at all. And in fact, the first half hour or so, I'd say, felt like this funny thing where it felt like a critique of what happened to American independent cinema in the mid 90s after Pulp Fiction hits, where everybody had to pretend to be a hitman and interested in hitmen. You know, everybody had to pretend to care about this thing that doesn't exist in reality, as hitman says, like hitmen aren't real. They don't exist. You can't find somebody online to pay $5,000 to commit a murder. It's not a real thing that exists in real life and it felt a bit a bit like commentary on like you don't understand in the mid 90s suddenly every independent filmmaker had to pretend to give a shit about hitmen which are not a fucking real thing because of this fucking movie that was such a splash success just like how in the early 90s every band had to pretend had to wear flannel and pretend to you know go singing burr, burr voices you know after grunge hits the same thing happened to american independence and it felt a little bit like commentary on that it loses that and then it just becomes um glenn powell who's very very charming being very charming with the incredibly sexy and charming adria arjona and it just becomes about their relationship and uh you know it's fun it it works a little bit it's like bernie it seemed to work a lot better for other people than it did for me. Bernie is a bad movie to me. Bernie does not play well and makes a few decisions that I think are mistakes and just torpedo it. This movie is the same thing to me, uh, where it makes decisions that I think there's just no recovering from. The two lead actors are perfectly cast. Everyone else in the movie is terrible terrible anytime it goes away from them the comic relief is just like brutally unfunny just you know the rainbow gang in the van given the peanut gallery commentary just everybody who is not the two leads is so bad in it its tone is so iffy it has that kind of like post out of sight get shorty soundtrack music you know what i'm talking about you can hear it play in your head but like the knockoff chintzy version in the knockoffs of those movies, it's, it's to me, you know, I don't know why Richard Linkletter keeps making movies like this. I don't think it plays to his strength, but it's also charming and funny. And I liked seeing those two in a movie. I, it's, it's a movie that I'm divided on. I just don't know why they made it out of this true story. It's a very inexplicable why they did this and why this movie exists. I just well, don't get it. It seems like you want to give, I'm sorry. It seems like you want to give Linkletter the benefit of the doubt by saying that he is making a comment on these kind of like post Tarantino 90s. Uh, that falls away there. after it, after yeah. the first like 20 minutes. I don't have that sense anymore. Well, my question was, and I think I've asked you before, did you, you think he was going for like almost like an Elmore Leonard or a gross point blank kind of charming, you know, crime caper thing with this? Uh, I guess... I don't know, I guess, but he's not good at it. 
You know, it's it's really it's really it's really mysterious to me. Those movies, his true crime movies are are very mysterious to me what he wants out of them because he's not a violent hateful person at all his films have an incredible gentleness and openness and open-heartedness and curiosity and thoughtfulness to them that's antithetical to the spirit of crime which is annihilating and closed off and selfish and obsessive right that's those are the opposite qualities of richard linkletter's films and so you have a movie like this and it and it sort of blossoms when it's about like these sexy people getting it on you know and pretending to be people they're not um, and it has a sort of like port of call New Orleans ish quality where the last 10 minutes it's like, you know, hey, and then that happens. Who cares? You know, it, or end of Hudson Hawk, like, how did you survive? The car blew up. Sprinklers, airbags, sprinkler. This like, ah, who fucking cares about the plot tone <laughs> to it in the last 10, 15 minutes of it? It really does just like seem to belie like, ah, who gives a shit? You know, it it really does have this weird quality to it. Dumb Money is in a different place on the spectrum where Dumb Money wants to turn the story of like disenfranchised internet ugliness, like the revolt of the people who detest the power structures, turn it into like a like, you know, snobs versus slobs comedy where the guys on the bottom are all like, you know, again, like multi-ethnic, you know, there's a black lesbian and a Latina nurse and, you know, an ethnically indeterminate GameStop employee, you know, and taking on the big guys who are uniformly like white dudes and big houses, right? And, and it doesn't want to contend with the fact that the people driving this in real life were fucking racist redditors who used the word retarded and the n word all the time and got their their um, thread shut down for these reasons, you know, and uh, and doesn't want to contend with the fact that this is this is an uncontrollable, annihilating force. It is a force of misery and revolt. It is not a political force. This movie, late in the movie, positions Maxine Waters and AOC as kind of heroes in some way. And the people on Wall Street Bets and that were pushing the short squeeze fucking overtly detested people like that. It's it's the kind of thing that it's impossible to imagine showing this movie if you put 250 of the people who had gotten in early, the diamond hands who were holding early into a theater and showing this movie that they would not boo continuously throughout it. This they they would want to burn this theater down. They would throw garbage at the director when he came out and they would say very vile things to him. Uh maybe they wouldn't have that courage in real life, but I think that's the way this movie will be received online. And so it's it's the kind of thing where this movie plays, it's very enjoyable, it's effective, it's got a next goal wins-esque you know, uh, sort of feel good story effectiveness to it. It's got in title cards that are like ludicrously positive about it. You know, I think that the problem that that the that the Wall Street bets redditors that the the short squeezers would have with people like Maxine Waters and AOC is that they're going to grandstand and talk a big game, but the people who committed crimes and did things wrong will face no repercussions in real life from them that they'll let people off the hook, which is in fact what happened. And the movie tries to find a way to spin it like, no, no, they got them, they got them, they all 
kept their money and faced no legal repercussions and the systems are all still in place and there was zero reform. But don't worry, they got them. It was a, this was a win for the little guy. And that stuff is completely ludicrous. It just has a completely ludicrous relationship to reality. There is some measure of lumpiness to it that feels like heavily re-edited. It's one of those things that like, it begins with like a more exciting, like, holy shit, things are going bad scene that's clearly just been shot to be later in the movie and then dropped in in front. And then it catches up with later. And in the first half an hour, there's like lumpiness to it. And there's moments where it feels like, oh, that's a weird, that feels like that should climax later or have a different relationship to it. But ultimately it's, it's fine. It's, it's kind of lumpy and not expertly done, but it works. It plays, it's good. The audience really liked it. I enjoyed it. It's a very enjoyable movie. It just has, I would say it's one step up more enjoyable than Hitman. It just has a, a very, you know, puzzling relationship to reality although in this case i'm less puzzled by it this is a movie that clearly wants to make this into a little guy versus big guy feel-good story for mass hollywood entertainment and it specifically wants to frame it as good guy democrats taking on wall street these are its two motivations good guy democrats taking on wall street on behalf of all of the black lesbian teenagers out there and latina nurses you know, like that's that's very much how it wants to frame this, not, you know, like slur using white guys trying to put, you know, capital firms out of business simply because they hate them and loved GameStop. You know, this is a movement that was associated with Gamergate, you know, on the on the wrong side of it. Uh, I think that it's it's again, it's like. It doesn't puzzle me at all why they did this. They took a a real story and took away every controversial, problematic element of it to in order to make money off of it. You know, this movie is this movie is the villains of the movie. You know, the people making and producing and acting and starring and putting out this movie are indistinguishable from the people that it's caricaturing and critiquing as villains. They're all the same people. They're all on the same side. You know, so it's not surprising what it is you know it's it's the it's you know it does not shock me at all this is a movie that's the craig gillespie spin (laughs) and then the last one wildcat i am really sorry to report to you john that maya hawk is fucking excellent as flannery o'connor i'm glad glad to hear this it's really good the problem with this movie is all of the short films in it when they adapt like parker's back or the violent barrett away uh, or not the violent bear away uh the life you might say the life you'll save might be your own um it's it uh the short films are terrible and they're done in a kind of caricatured broadness and as i said maya hawk and laura linney always play the two main roles in them um to emphasize how much these stories are in some way inspired by her and her mom's contentious relationship but it means that laura linney is constantly miscast she is constantly put in roles in which she is incapable of playing them as a phenomenally good versatile is she a versatile actress i would say part of her problem is she's not a super versatile actress she's merely an excellent actress that is good at doing a certain kind of character with incredible nuance and sophistication and variation. But I don't think you can cast her in a bunch of different roles. You can't cast her as like uh, toothless, chaw gumming, redneck, you know, poor Southerner. It's just, she, you can't get there. There's, there's a physical emotional reality aural, like as in terms of their aura reality to people. And so a lot of these, um, 
stories, Flannery O'Connor does have broad grotesquery to her stories. And if you overplay it, it becomes like goofy comedic. And so the short films are constantly overplaying it. Although what it mainly reveals about the short stories in these short films is that these short stories are fucking bulletproof. The stories are still fucking great. Even when they get botched, you see them and you're like, God damn, that's a great story. Because they're just fucking bulletproof. They're just bulletproof ideas. And even without the beauty and surprisingness and uh, and uh, unpredictability of her writing, they still play. They're just great stories. They're great little narratives, even without her incredibly sophisticated writing, putting them in the stratosphere. They still, the stories are like, that's a good fucking story, even when it's being botched, you know? And so I'd say this movie is, is somewhere between excellent and uh, a mess, um, or it's both excellent and MS at the same time. But the thing about its relationship to reality is find interesting is it's so deeply steeped in Flannery O'Connor. It really cares about Flannery O'Connor and hewing as close to the reality of her as possible. It wants to quote her as much as possible. It reads from her letters constantly. It reads from the stories constantly. I think it really wants to, it really cares about getting Flannery O'Connor right in a very, very palpable way that I find admirable. And it ends up being like, like, I just got to spend an hour and a half, two hours, whatever it is with Flannery O'Connor. There's fucking way worse ways to spend your time. And narratively, is the use of the stories, the adaptations of the stories, anything like the flash forward and flashback murders of Woman of the Hour? Um, No, not really, because this is she'll like see somebody on a bus and then think about and then it'll sort of lead into um all that uh rises must converge. rises must converge yeah yeah it'll like lead into that you know she'll be on a bus and see somebody in a, in a hat and it'll inspire the hat right mm, okay. or she'll see you know somebody at a roadside a diner and that'll inspire the thought about you know whichever it is um and so, yeah, it works more I'm glad like that. To hear it's good. I want every movie to be good. When you told when you to, when you told yeah. me Oppenheimer is actually good, I was happy. You yeah. know, I'd like Chris Nolan to make a movie I want to see. I yeah. want every movie to be good. I don't hold grudges. I am more than willing to give second, third, fourth chances to anybody. I believe that you know a Hollywood movie star can cast his own daughter in a Flannery O'Connor biopic, and then it can actually be worth seeing. I'm glad that that's the news. There are things, but I, it's a mess. There are things in this movie that will infuriate you, John. I'm very divided on whether you should see it or not because you're you're so steeped in Flannery O'Connor, you don't need this movie. You know this stuff inside and out. I don't think there's going to be any revelations for you. If you're not familiar with Flannery kind of, it's funny also talking about done money, like staying away from like the use of retard and the N-word and stuff, right? This movie like positions it like, it's the people around Flannery O'Connor who use the N-word. She never would have done that herself. <laughs> you know, it really st stays away from the fact that she's a Patricia Highsmith style fucking uh misanthrope who has who has vile words for everyone who ever existed you know and yeah. so i think i think that you know but i do think that part of her like highsmith gets overstated and that looking at her as an artist and a thinker and a feeler and a religious person um it's you know it it dodges that bullet but i think it's fair the way it dodges it you know all right, let's lightning round this next one, shall we? Midnight Blandness. A few uh, films we saw from the Midnight Madness ticket. 
well, I will I will go ahead and get this one out of the way because it's technically not a Midnight Madness selection. Uh, Concrete Utopia is a South Korean movie uh, about a, a devastating earthquakes uh, supposedly all around. Yeah, the world I didn't mean no this. Response. I didn't mean for this con for this group to be specifically the Midnight Madness film. I meant for it to be like genre movies. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So uh, yeah, so South Korean film, a devastating earthquake levels every building in the city except for one you know and uh the people who live in this building that's a they set up very specific perimeters first they kick out all the people who didn't live there before the earthquake and then they work to secure the area and completely fence themselves off from everything that's going on outside their building they have literally the only livable place in the entire city and turn a complete blind eye to everyone else until of course they need to you know forge for food and things like that and then they have to like go out and take it from uh, from the outside, like many, it feels South Korean genre films uh, like this science fiction, actiony, drama, 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 drama uh, fueled South Korean films. This one is very heavy handed, very on the nose, kind of with its messages about class and uh, you know how it feels about um, you know setting up a, a political system. I was convinced up until maybe the last five minutes of movies that what it wanted to say was fascist can be good sometimes depending on the situation <laughs> maybe it's a good idea to like protect what's yours and like um, govern people and make rules you know uh because if not then everything's fucked uh but <laughs> it does it does like a like a quick about face at the end just to be like no 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 we're we're not we're not saying that we're at not all saying it's good that they make the trains run on time <laughs> exactly um uh, so this movie is totally enjoyable. I, you know, it was a fun, it was fun to sit there and watch it. I would never watch it again. You know, it's, uh, you know, nothing really super surprising happens in it, but like super well-made, you know, uh, like many, again, many of the films that come out of South Korea are very, very well-made genre films that are very enjoyable. Just do not like shake the boat in any way. Do not like, you know, just blow a hole in your mind at any point. You're just going to get what, you know, you kind of came to expect. So, perfectly fine perfectly uh you know forgettable once it's over yeah and then what are the other two and the other two the midnight madness movies are hell of a summer which is a uh slasher camp camp slasher movie slash comedy and boy kills world which is a uh, what would you call it a, a fight movie it's a fight movie it's an action movie it's an action a go fight movie. go kill the evil leader movie right be trained be trained by a shaman in martial arts and use your skills to go kill the evil leader who's oppressing the world yes right this what i struck me about all these all three of these and even you describing concrete utopia which i didn't see hell of a summer is directed by finn wolfhard and billy burke of stranger things fame who are also in it um boy kills world stars uh uh uh, stars bill skarsgård and famke jansen um And my takeaway from these movies is, I don't know if it's because I'm getting old, but it feels like, you know, Hell of a Summer is like the kind of movie, it's just too inambitious and affable to even say anything about. Like, it's it's the kind of movie where I walked out of it and I was saying to you, the whole time I was thinking is, if I saw this when I was 15, what would my relationship to it be? Would I have been like, that's really fun and funny? Or would I have been like, this is junk? Like, what what would it have been? Because it's certainly not a movie that a 44-year-old who's seen hundreds of slashers at this point, I mean, as thousands of slashers, an exaggeration, definitely hundreds, um, 
there's just no there's no relationship to have to it you know there's just really nothing to be said about it and boy of kills world is the kind of movie that seems more like an impression of the thing than the thing itself which is as sort of like the, again the post tarantino approach to genre has just accelerated as the generations and years have gone on where this does not feel like a movie so much as an impression of the kind of movie that the filmmakers they like liked you know what i mean it it doesn't even feel like a thing and then concrete utopia the way you describe it of just like that kind of korean like a horror thriller type thing i know exactly what it is without seeing it um it just feels like where where can genre go am i just is genre just a young person's game you know i definitely would have been induced to see boy kills world because sam raimi produced it when i was 15 years old and was like a raimi fanatic um would i've liked it i don't know i don't know if i would have talked myself into it i just look at these movies and i feel like I understand why genre is associated with young people because it just feels like what is the problem me being older is the problem that genre has gotten stale is when I watch children who are wrong. Exactly. But it's like, is it is this just a case of three not that interesting movies or is it the case of like genre will inevitably be less interesting the older you get i really don't know i really Mm. don't know especially after my experience at the chattanooga film festival where it every movie i saw there felt so unremarkable and it was like is that is that well no i saw one that i actually uh was was interesting um tearsucker was interesting there but it was um it was sort of like you know, I don't know. What do you what do you feel about that? Do you think I'm being too hard on myself or do you think that the movies there are bad? Well, I'm 100 percent the wrong person to ask because yeah. I'm your same age and I, you know, have the same kind of impression of these films. I mean, I think both of these films are just that the people who made them are just not talented enough. Hell of a summer, you know, benefits at least from them having like given it a a, a go you know I, yeah. I feel like they at least committed to doing what they wanted to do i just don't think they're yeah hell of a summer yeah feels like the i don't know how old those kids are they look young but it feels like you gave some kids the the you know the keys to the camaro and they ran it you know they didn't even run it into a wall they just sort of like did donuts in the in the parking lot and came <laughs> home and you're like okay i guess you can do that with the camaro you know it yeah. just it it feels Again, it's so affable. All of the actors are um, up for it. It's game. It's trying to be funny. It's trying to move. But again, it's a movie. You know, I was talking about The Convert. Watching this movie, I'm thinking, why are there no shots in this movie? Like, there's nothing I would describe (laughs) as a shot that's, like, constructed and put together in some way in this film. Why does it look... There might like, be, you just can't see them. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very well, the, underlit film. Well, we said there are two at the end. There's like a sunrise yeah. shot and there's like a slow motion flame shot that are both shots, but the rest of it are like not even shots. Whereas Boy Kills World is the opposite. It's overloaded with shoddy shot, shot shots, and is just as as ineffective. Um, yeah. yeah, it's, I, I don't know. I just don't know. I just don't know what to do with this stuff. Like, I don't well, want to- Yeah. They're the kind of things I don't want to shit on because I want, they're the kind of thing that I want to be good. 
So I'm willing to lower the bar super far for these three kind of movies, you know? I, I'm just willing to to let them off the hook in a way I'm not for like a Richard Linkletter movie. You know what I mean? Like I'm willing to lower the bar so far, but it's but it's do they even clear that bar anymore? I just don't I just don't fucking know. I don't know what the future of horror movies and action movies are uh, when I watch or Korean cinema, you know, when I hear about and watch these movies. I just don't know. I feel I feel like. You know, I guess my time has passed, and and I don't know. I, I think, I think you're being, I think you're being melodramatic. I don't think we need to like bank, you know, the future of the genre on these particular films. I but think when, that... but I asked you this on the car ride home. Who, what is a filmmaker with an original voice who is under thirty five, and neither of us yeah. could think of anybody. Sure, sure, it's true. Um, but I do think that there are films coming out from the directors who I can't name. And we named a few, uh, you know, some, you know, Asian action films and things like that, that are great. That still, you know, have. Yeah. Night comes power. Yeah. Yeah. Boy kills world wants to be night comes for us and night comes for us really fucking plays, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. it just has this problem of, you know, I mean, obviously one of the big problems is it has this horrible Deadpool style voiceover that, yeah. Actually, you know what it is? It's more of a Taika Waititi and Love and Thunder kind of voiceover. You're just like, stop yeah. fucking talking. I don't care that you're enjoying your cupcake. Hilarious. Yeah. Fucking move on. You know, it's just, it's yeah. just it just kills it. It's deadly. But uh, it also has the problem of just, you know, we can do this shit with these long action, these drawn out fight scenes that, you know, there's, uh, you, know, you don't expect anything to happen except a bunch of henchmen get, you know, kicked in the head and knocked to the ground and it goes there's on no, interminably. Yeah, there's no stakes. There's no rhythm to it. There's there's no, it's just, you know, it's the kind of thing where people will get shot and stabbed and there's no gravity to any of it. And I don't know. It, it, it Look, we discussed it in the preview. The Midnight Madness programming at TIFF has been bad for a long time now. The, this the, it it might be their programming is so bad that it makes me feel like genre just isn't it good anymore. It might be a failure of their programming as well. It might just be that their programming is so bad that it leads me to doubt the future of the genre, you know, of any <laughs> genre filmmaking. We did see two. I wanted to compare these sort of like exercises and blandness to stylistic experiments as two that we saw that were both like completely stripped down stylistic experiments. One was Harmony Corinne's Agro Drift, which is like this non-movie shot entirely in infrared with like weird video game-ish graphic overlays on it. And the other was Limbo, which was a um, black and white detective movie starring Simon Baker, which is is... Um, a real exercise in slow cinema, but shows how, like, if you're going to try and be Bellatar, you have to be excellent. You know, like, if you're yeah. going to try and move that slowly and work with the landscape in that way, you have to be fucking fantastic. And both of these movies, Agro Drift is like a non-movie. You know, Limbo's like a non-movie, too. Limbo's just him going and asking questions to people who don't want to talk to him and going back. It's, it's one scene after another, if he's standing outside a trailer with his arms crossed and someone walks out of the trailer and he says, what do you, what do you want? Ah, just uh, waiting for you. Well, you're going to be waiting for a long time. All right. 
You're going to tell me about your sister? Yes. Yeah, oh, no, God. I don't. Move it. Move. I won't. Yeah. Movie, move. And then Agro Drift is about the number one world's greatest hitman who's sent to kill the demon bad guy and leaves his family by his beautiful family behind and goes and <laughs> kills the bad guy. And that's it. That's the entire movie. And it's and it gets a little bit of hype and notoriety because Travis Scott is in it. It's it's one of the movies that I a few movies I've ever watched where I thought, did they film this in one day? Do you think they filmed that in one day, John? I think it's possible they filmed that in one day, don't you? Depending how many strippers they could get together at one time, yeah, I'd say probably it was something. They like they had Travis Scott with them. They could get a billion strippers together on five minutes' notice. <laughs> All he would have to do is put on his Instagram. Come here. We need strippers. Will you be naked in a movie? I need you here in 15 minutes. And they would get 1000 of them. You know, I don't doubt it. I don't doubt it. It's yeah. Just... <laughs> it's funny thinking of this movie because it also speaking. And of I should add over... that I, that I like this kind of shit. I enjoyed this nonsense garbage so much. <laughs> okay. Go on, John. Sorry. No, I was just going to say, speaking of voiceover, it has this almost Terrence Malick esque, inner monologue from all the characters throughout the thing that just really made it seem like this movie was made for Marcus Penn, I think. It's so, and the, but it's also like... It's, three things that Marcus loves, Terrence Malick, Harmony Corinne, Predator. They're all in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also got the voiceover. It's like, if Hell of a Summer is sort of like a meta slasher self-parody, and it's not really... This movie is beyond self-parody. This movie is like parodying the thing and then pushing it so far. It's like, if we parody this hard enough, if we make this so absurd and brain damaged that it just becomes Terrence Malick, if we repeat something stupid enough times, will it just magically become a Terrence Malick movie? And it's, it's a movie that's sure to infuriate people for sure. And it and it is a brain damaged is the only way I can describe this thing. But I really I think Kareem would be happy that that move that screening got more walkouts than anything we saw this year. It's he's a naturally talented aesthetic filmmaker. It is nothing but shots. This movie, you know, sure. he he is such an idiot savant natural talent that like I you know it's 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 both nothing not something and something not nothing. It's it's both one of the films of the festival and completely disregardable in every way, you know. Yes, well said. Yeah. Whereas Limbo was completely disregardable, and and it's really trying to be heavy and serious art movie, and it and it it's made by it's a filmmaker black with, and white for God's sake. It's it's made by a filmmaker that I would describe as having no talent. That's how I would describe that filmmaker. If Harmony Corinne made it, it would be incredibly memorable movie and he would not have to change the script even one percent you know and i think that that's just you watch some of this stuff and it's like why do some filmmakers have it and some don't and and it's again it's like when you try and find new filmmaking voices and that's what i wanted to lead into with riddle of fire is just like what what are the new filmmaking voices what would that be and so i watched riddle of fire and we were very hard the age of rizzoli or not that's the question. We watched, we were very hard on Weston Rizzoli in our preview, who's just some nice young man, I'm sure, making his feature debut. He didn't need us, you know, sort of 
having fun at his expense in any way. And so I said, I'm going to go watch his movie and give it a real chance because we were such stupid fucking dickheads about it. And the problem with Riddle of Fire is that his directing ruins it. It's it's an interesting idea that has to be perfect to work. And since it's not perfect, it doesn't work at all, right? And it's the kind of thing that watching for it, I'm rooting for it very much, but he's getting in the way of it being good constantly rather than letting the film find itself and letting the truth find itself and letting the performances find themselves and letting the narrative find itself. He's inflicting himself on it and getting in the film's own way. And it's, and it's a shame because it is, it is something, not nothing. And I would encourage people to watch it actually, because I think this is the kind of movie, again, if I saw this movie when I was 16, uh, this might be a movie that I'm like, that's really fucking great. That's a really fucking interesting, great movie, you know? And, and there's something, you know, there's something to it. It's in a good genre. It's in that sort of, you know, war of the buttons genre that, that time stands still genre, you know, um, that's not the name of that movie, not time stands still. I can't remember the Hungarian movie about the kids that, um, son of Rambo, uh, steals a lot from son of Rambo. It's in that genre. Um, it's, it's, you know, and that's a good rich genre and good things can be done with it. Um, it just, it just makes too many mistakes. It just, it just makes too many mistakes. And I, and I was really the moments when it works, you're like, this is, this is great. This is on to something, but the moments when it doesn't work, you're just like, looking at your hands through your fingers. I would say it's crazy to say pool boy is the worst movie to ever play at a major festival. When something like this is in a film festival, you know, where it's just like something that's misfiring in every direction, but you want to be kind to it. It's a movie you want to be kind to. Um, and, and if this movie ended up emerging and developing some minor cult reputation around it, I would a thousand percent believe it too. So yeah. you should see it. I want to know what you think of it. I it's would actually like to. What, definitely how I came out of it. But it did make me sound like he's a new voice. I should be rooting for this harder. I should be kinder to this kind of film. I should be supporting this kind of film more because he's actually up to something in a way Boy Kills World and Hell of a Summer and Concrete Utopia aren't. You know what I mean? He's actually up to something and trying for something. And I should be more supportive of that. If I want more movies like that, I need to be more supportive of it when it doesn't work, you know, but yeah. I don't know. Do you think again, am I overthinking it? Like I was with the, uh, with the other stuff. Do you understand what I'm saying? What do you think of what I'm saying about riddle of fire? <laughs> no, I like what you're saying. I'd like the idea that you're willing to give this guy a chance and say, I'm willing to give your movie the same kind of, you know, I that I'm going to give, Films by tried and true filmmakers who've been around for years. I think, I think that we both would love to discover a new voice, the future of movies moving forward, and like someone who's going to do something that clearly has a passion for telling their story and for like doing something different and interesting. I that's something I would love to discover. So I 100% get your interest in like you know wanting to give Riddle of Fire more benefit of the doubt. It's the kind of movie that's good enough to deserve a thoughtfully bad review. Mm -hmm. It's the kind of movie that's good enough to deserve a thoughtfully negative review. That's not just trying to take the feet out from underneath of it, you know? Yeah. 
Um, but that leads us into our next section, which is that, well, let's get into some old filmmaking voices now. Let's get into a, a pair of films that really, really worked for you, John, and I think worked for everybody that saw them. These were two of the very well-reviewed movies coming out of the festival. Yes. Vim Vendor's Perfect Days, which, you know, people have hyped as like, he's back after decades and decades of mediocrity. <laughs> this is as good as his like early stuff. And I'm just going to say straight out, I don't want to get too deep into this movie right now because this is definitely something I'd like to talk about on a full episode. I'd like to pair it with uh, uh, Bill Tech talking about Patterson because it really is like a, a sister film, I think, to Jarmusch's movie in a lot of ways. And Vendors and Jarmusch obviously are two very simpatico, you know, artists, you know, who I don't think, uh, who I think, you know, have very singular careers, but are very, very similar in what their interests in and, you know, their, their characters. And um, so I want to get like deeper into this later, but I, what I will say is that uh, this movie was definitely my speed the same way Patterson was definitely my speed. It spoke to me in ways that, uh, you know, were very, uh, very thoughtful and interesting. And it's a movie that will absolutely, in my opinion, uh, wither under heavy praise, you know, by, by being overly, uh, enthusiastic about this film don't expect a fucking masterpiece but this is just a like a beautiful little film uh, and definitely my speed and again something that I really want to like come back to Koji Yakushi, uh, uh, Yakusho for you know everyone saying you know how great he is they are absolutely right I will be willing to say he is phenomenal uh, another Japanese actor might be the best performance of the festival but he is absolutely phenomenal in this movie and it's all it's all him this movie is centered completely around him and his portrayal of this character uh, so I would absolutely recommend it. Uh, I, you know, wouldn't if someone was like, "Oh, is it as good as uh, Paris, Texas?" I'd be like, "Oh, well, you know, let's not go nuts. Let's just say this is a really <laughs> good film. Is it better than anything he's done in the last few decades? Yeah, but what's that? You know, what does that say? Like, there are a lot of films that are better than what Vendors has been doing, um, and then it feels also a lot like um, uh, like someone in love, uh, which is another yeah. film. You know, by you know when a foreigner came into Japan and made it like a, a film there as like a kind of uh, powerful su uh, subtle power to it and you know is uh was another film that i fell in love with it at uh, tiff uh from a director who i was not you know a, a huge big fan of so that's another film that it's you know i would compare it to but the other movie that i would like to talk more about is uh, the new frederick wiseman of course well, let me just say about perfect days the funny anecdote is that we went out to dinner one night and there was this guy standing around in a restaurant and I don't I don't know how to describe him other than like he looked like the dude from Sparks uh, or Paul Feig dressed up like a Wes Anderson character, like like uh, the main character in Wes Anderson's Major Hulot remake. This very tall guy with like a pencil mustache and like round glasses and this like extravagantly weird get up, right? And you left that restaurant because it was too hoity-toity for you and you just wanted a burger. So I sat there and I ate my corn ribs and watched a little bit of the football. You went to the you went to the pub because you just didn't even like the look of that place. And when I was going to the bathroom, I realized they were having the perfect days party there. And I was like, John, you left. We could have uh, walked and snuck into the perfect days party here and uh, and hung out with the perfect days people. And uh, and then later on, the next day, I saw a photo of Vim Vendors, who I've not been keeping on what he looks like. And it was him. It was Vim Vendors looking like <laughs> a fucking cartoon character. Very, very tall. All directors are tall and come from money. And I should have known he'd be a tall guy. I should have fucking known. <laughs> you should have known. 
I was, but it was funny. I gave you the like, look at this asshole. Look at this cartoon <laughs> man. And he did the thing that Asaius had done to me of like, he saw me looking at him and like opened his body. Like I'm them. If you want to come talk, I'm here, you know? Yeah. Kind of thing. Uh, um, yeah. No, go on. Yeah. The other film is the new Frederick Wiseman, uh, Menu Plaisir Le Trugro. I'm sorry. I'm saying that totally wrong, but that, is a film about a um, you know restaurant in the French country, very fancy restaurant with lots of employees. And uh, what are you going to say about Wiseman? Obviously, it's Wiseman. He could really do no wrong. Um, this movie, you know, was not the kind of like Wiseman film that I just you know just penetrated my soul the way like Boxing Gym or In Jackson Heights or Crazy Horse did. But it's still a Wiseman film and. Uh, beautiful and interesting and surprising in all the ways you would imagine i would really this is i don't usually think when i watch his films what does wiseman think about all this because he is such a professional fly on the wall in these movies you know where it's just like i'm just capturing the reality of this business being run this industry you know happening these people working uh and take what you will from them but this is a film that I really would wonder what, I mean, he's obviously like, a, a, you know, probably an Epicurean himself. He's probably someone who eats in very nice restaurants, unlike me, yeah. who eats around, you know, the pub around the corner. So, you know, I'm sure he definitely loves the artistry that's going into this. You know, he definitely shows these chefs making these dishes and it feels like an art. But at the same time, the people who patronize this place are just the absolute worst and, you know, the business uh, discussions that they have about running the restaurants are insane, as crazy as like anything <laughs> you would find in like the store or one of the other Wiseman movies where like, what is the focus here? And what are we even fucking talking about this for for 20 minutes for? And it has all that kind of, you know, usual humor with that. But like, what do you think of all this, Fred? And I think he doesn't know what to think about. it. It's like magic is happening, but it's like contained in this gray box that is business, you know, that is the way that something is run. So it's an absolutely fascinating kind of depiction of this restaurant. It's interesting too because it looks exactly like the restaurant from the menu from last year. You know that uh, <laughs> yeah yeah that that you know uh, we're gonna really hand it to all these you know rich people who go to eat at fancy places and eat these tiny little foods and we're gonna make fun of them and the people who make them. It's funny that it had like it looks exactly like it. So you can't like that movie's not going to be like far from your mind. You're like, is he criticizing these people? And it's like, no, it's Fred Wiseman. He doesn't criticize anything. But I would be very curious to hear like, what was, what did you take from this experience in this film, Mr. Wiseman for the you know first time in a while? I'm thinking like, I'm wondering what his thoughts were, but a beautiful film. Absolutely great. It's Fred Wiseman. What do you want to say? I, I want to see it. It was so long and it was running over other movies. So Four I hours had to, long. yeah. So I've, I had to pick the other movies. I will definitely see that at some point. Um, it, it will be on Canopy very quickly, no doubt. And uh, so I, I can't wait to see it. I will obviously um, see it the moment I can. But it was, it was with such limited options, it, was, it felt like it was going to take up too much of the festival. Speaking of movies that are long, there were two movies we saw that I have very little to say about them except... These movies were way too long. Now, if you listened to our, in retrospect, tragic TIFF 2023 preview, the movie we are most excited for, reasonably popping out of our minds, 
is Victor Ariche's Close Your Eyes, his first movie in 31 years, the director of Spirit of the Beehive and El Sur, one of the true greats, and we cannot wait to see this movie. And in retrospect, I should have recognized the red flags around this film coming out of its its other festival screenings, which were that there was a kind of um, muted respectfulness for it. There was a kind of muted, like, it's Ariche's new movie, you know, like, it, like it's it's good to have him back. That should have been a, a, a cue that it is not good. And as one of like cinema's great poets of light, I'm not like a 35 millimeter purist at all. In fact, I like digital looks. I like digital film. I think that DCP is a godsend for repertory and cinema access. I think that most times if you see something on 35 millimeter, you're going to see a shit print of it in the repertory world. And in fact, there's any film from the 77 to 82 era where Technicolor was using different processes that lead to a lot of the vinegar syndrome and the pinkness of it. I will not watch a movie on 35 millimeter if I know it's from that era. Um, I have to say that him not shooting on 35 is a disaster that that this movie does not look good. This this movie's floor is very high. The the worst of this movie is like a C C plus. The problem is that its highest moments in its three hour runtime are like B plus kind of moments. You know, like if that was the best moment, if those if the movie had one or two really great moments or scenes to go with those moments, it would add up to a great film, but the peaks are so low as well in this film. It's very gentle. It's way, 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 way too long. You watch it and you go, Oh shit. I know what the producers of El Sur were thinking now. Like, I know why they were like, we got to take this away from him because you're watching it in real time. Like this is, this is not good. This is not working. You're taking too long to get everywhere and it's not interesting enough. It's not visually interesting. Uh, he doesn't have the ability to work with light that he once did. The The performances are kind of generic. The story is super generic. It's, I, I, when we came out of it, you told me I was being too hard on it. I, as the more time goes on, I feel like when we walked out of it, I was not hard enough on it. It's not a good movie is where I would categorize it. You know, I, and, and I don't want to, it's the kind of thing where it's like, it feels like I would never want to curse the blessing of having Ariche back, but it's, it's lying to myself to say it's a good movie or even a, like a, a movie worth seeing. I'm going to go so far as to say it's not a movie worth seeing. The other movie we saw that was way too long is a Japanese film called Great Absence, which is yeah. a kind of family melodrama about... Uh, senility, a uh, father who's, uh, you know, uh, slowly fading away mentally and uh, everyone's sort of dealing with it. And it kind of sets itself up as like kind of this weird mystery where it seems like it's telling you there's more to learn the further we go in the in in this thing that, you know, yeah. you don't have all the information. There's right? layers to this onion that we're going to unravel. Yeah, it even opens with like this weird scene with like a SWAT team invading a house where it makes, makes you think like, oh, wow, there's going to be interesting stuff going on in this film. This movie just wants you to think for so long that something interesting is right around the bend. And it's what, two, two hours, 40, something like that, three hours long. And it's just like, 
it just keeps promising and promising and just nothing interesting really ever happens. And that's despite having really good lead performances. Uh, Mirai Moriyama, who's also in um, Shinya Tsukamoto's new movie that we saw at the festival, is very good in it. And the guy who plays the grandfather with uh, the, the dimension Tatsuya Fuji they are both very, very, very good in this movie. And I would say these performances are completely wasted in this film. And again, it's what you're saying where the plot of this movie, you could make a 75 minute version of this movie and lose nothing. And it's not textured or well shot enough or delicate. That's the problem with both Close Your Eyes and Great Absence is again, there's no shots in this film. Well, that's not true. Great Absence has the opening sequence and then the the following sequence where we catch up with the the son at the experimental theater thing, where the first 10 minutes, there's a bunch of shots and you're like, oh, this is going to be a directed movie that's going to have interesting direction and construction to it. Um, and it doesn't. And same thing with Close Your Eyes. It's this very generic shot, reverse shot stuff. You know, 95% of the time, there's very few memorable shots in it. When it does try to get a little complicated, they're definitely not magical. Close Your Eyes is completely lacking in magic. Great Absence is completely lacking in any sort of narrative drive or visual grippingness. You know, it's they're both, uh, you know, flat as, you know, three day old soda. You know Certainly what I mean? It's not going to be a film with 25 scenes of somebody reading notes and looking through scraps of paper. <laughs> yeah. Now you dodge talking about close your eyes, which I can only assume is because you're a coward. Uh, yeah. Big pussy. what do you think of close your eyes? <laughs> I don't want to go on record about it. Really? So you are being a gigantic coward about it. Absolutely. Um, that's pretty funny. Why would you not go on record about it? Everybody understands that you didn't like it, John, by you not going on record now. And I'm going to put you on the record. When we got out, you tried to defend it half-heartedly. And then a couple of days later, you were like, it's not that great. So you're on the record now. <laughs> deny that's it? That's hearsay. Are you, you going to deny what I just said? <clears throat> that's hearsay, sir. For real, why don't you want to go on the record? Um, because we got so many more films to get through. We don't want to wait, uh, have everybody... It's so fucking whack sometimes. <laughs> so the next one is the most tasteful and important category, which is two movies, Seven Veils and The Great Absence, which uh, we're pairing up to think a little more about Great Absence, which we just talked about. It's two movies about parents as uh, demented rapists, rapists with dementia, parents with dementia, sexual assault. Isn't that great, John? What do you have to say about Seven Veils? <laughs> Are you willing to go on the record about Adam McGoy and Seven Veils starring... Absolutely starring Amanda Seyfried, the star of his biggest hit, Chloe, which we were both shocked to find out is Adam McGoy's biggest hit. <laughs> yeah, that was very surprising. Reteaming. What's Seven Veils? Seven Veils is a story of a young woman who has, uh, was, what is her relationship? I, I'm never 100% sure that this, this, this legendary uh, director of an opera she company. Was, she was the protege. She was, his... she was the protege oh, of, she was yeah. the protege of the famous opera director who was married and she started sleeping with him and he promised her he would break up with it, leave his wife for her. He did not, obviously, but he took all of the stories of her uh, traumatic youth, her youthful abuse at the hands of her father and turned it into his big hit play, which she is now restaging 20 years later that it's become public knowledge that he used her biography to stage the play. 
Right. And it's based on that. Another level of me- of meta-ness on Agoyan's own staging of um of Strauss's uh of Salome play uh based on Oscar Wilde's Salome play um that Adam Agoyan staged in the in the late 90s and then restaged for this movie. Yes. So it's, you know, within that, Amanda Seyfried plays the abused young woman whose dad makes like creepy videos with her as a little girl. Um, and uh, and then her mom, who has dementia, is sitting around refusing to acknowledge what happened. Uh, this is Adam McGoin's best movie in quite some time, which is really a bummer, which is really, <laughs> really says a lot about the bad state of things for that guy. Yeah, it's funny to kind of compare him to someone like Vendors who, you know, no matter how bad Vendors gets you, like there was always a good era than Vendors yeah. with the Goyan. You said it, you know, you see these modern movies and you're like, man, were the early ones any good? Was he ever actually that any good at all? Yeah. Outside of uh, Sweet Hereafter. Yeah, which is a knockout. This movie is definitely this movie, Amanda Seyfried. It's shocking it's rare to see in a movie with this many professionals and this big of a budget. She frequently has long sequences where she's the only one talking and giving virtual monologues. And she has trouble remembering her lines at time and stumbles through them in a way that's kind of painful to watch. Um, And I don't know. It feels a bit like he's hanging her out to dry. She just doesn't feel up to it and the movie is all about her and i said you know to you like this movie's problem um she's an interesting actress who can be quite interesting in things but she's not up to this if you made tar starring amanda seyfried you know instead of kate blanchett you would end up with something like this it, mm-hmm. where it's just not good enough you know this really needs a lodestar who's delivering a knockout performance in that lead role and and she, she just doesn't she can't come close to it, it, it and there's of natalie portman's uh, natalie portman's agents didn't get back to us in time <laughs> um although natalie portman couldn't have done it either it really needs a he would have been till- better than amanda Siegfried. i don't know it needs like somebody with tilda swinton cape lanchette level gravity hmm. meryl streep level gravity to it you know it, it really needs that kind of thing and when it doesn't have it it it's you know but i, I wouldn't i would i don't uh, hate this movie this movie's yeah. kind of good <laughs> well 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 i would uh, the thing is I of interest like, yeah everything on her i think yeah that, like it's a really cool concept uh i think that you know he kind of takes two michael powell movies uh the red shoes and uh peeping tom and kind of puts them together in one film uh that's interesting enough but like every performance in this is like uh hyper performed and very very superficial in a very actory wait yeah. wait 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 john i'm shocked you're willing to go on the record with that absolutely I will go oh on. my goodness what bravery <laughs> um yeah no it's 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 just not it's it's okay it's not good it's a cool idea like uh if you're inclined to seven veils see it and there's a lot that's not great in it there's a lot of of false notes and mistakes but there's plenty of cool stuff and, and interesting stuff in it too and and again getting steeped in in salome and strauss and and wild salome is awesome that shit is fucking awesome and you spend a lot of time deep inside of it you know yeah for sure yeah no it's not not bad it's just not great 
<laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> or it's probably bad, but with some great. Yeah, I don't even know how to. It's just you know, don't 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 put that one on your must see list for sure. It's, it's bumming me out to give these kind of. <laughs> reviews let's talk about actual greatness let's talk about two movies that we both agree or at least yeah these are we're headed, we both agree we're headed into the last four movies two more sections uh that and these are all movies we loved these these last four movies that are fucking fantastic these are the super hits yes uh the first one that we agree on pictures of ghosts yeah film about race uh, history of racine about its cinemas Recife. oh sorry a film about the history of Recife, its culture, its cinemas, about the director growing up there and how he incorporated that into his films and uh, his experience and his love of the city. And uh, God, what do you even say? It's it's fucking beautiful. Yeah, like, it's the director movies, of love this movie. It's the director of Baccarat. And the first like third of the movie is him talking about this special apartment that he and his mom and his brother built in Recife and where he filmed all of his youthful like teenage horror movies and then his first two real features he filmed in this place and it's about stuff like the neighbor's dog and the changing architecture and then the second two-thirds of the movie are about the movie houses of Recife where he spent his youth growing up going to movies their architecture their architectural history the economic history of the city you know and in Recife Brazil Recife is mainly known as a beach town. That's all I knew it as. I dated a woman from Recife and I didn't know any of this. And it was incredibly um, fascinating stuff. This movie is destined to become an ultra classic of a certain kind of cinephile, like alongside like American movie and Z channel. There's a certain kind of cinephile that like you say, ghost pictures of ghosts, Z channel, you know, American movie. And they go, oh, and just, you know, get that, oh my God, that movie, that response to it. This is going to join those. It's going to be right alongside them. And I will say, I think it's better than either of them. I think it's the most legitimately beautiful and astonishing artwork of that kind. It's 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 like a Chris Marker level um, uh, rumination on memory and image and the passage of time and the eternity of change the constantness of change and which things get frozen in time and which things get moved forward and it's it's really you you said it it's it, it's an astonishing movie you know that's yeah. that's when we walked out and it's really it's i don't know what kind of life it's going to lead but for certain cinephiles this is like ultra canon this is like you you know uh, uh fucking our buddies at pcp this is a handshake film you know what i mean yeah oh no question no question if you don't like this movie i, I don't have anything to say to you um yeah. but i mean there's a moment where he specific specifies you know when uh at the time that they started all citywide putting up fences and, and bars and great things like that and relating it to his own films because people see this in his films and they say was that production designer is that really how the city yeah. is and I, that for me really summed up this movie because it is so much about this man, uh, <laughs> this we keep calling this man, uh, Clever Mondoka, Fio, uh, taking this city and turning it into his art, you know, and, and vice versa. You know, it's all kind of intertwined in a way that is so uh, magical and it's his, just so haunting. His art 
is indistinguishable from his city and the city is indistinguishable from his life. So his life is indistinguishable from his art, which is indistinguishable from the city. You know, it's that beautiful, tight circle. And it's, it's incredible movie. Just sitting here talking to you about it. I want to watch it again immediately. That's, that's one of those movies. Yeah. Is if they played this again right now, I'd watch it again right now. I'll go on record for saying that. No, no question. Absolutely. Best Um, of the best for me. No question. It would be best of the fest, except, you know, (laughs) it's, there's, there's a movie that's really, if we're being honest is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) But the other indisputably great movie that, that we saw or that I saw was monster, uh, Hirokazu Koreeda's new movie about a mother with a teenage son who's having problems with a teacher at school and the school's response and the teacher are deranged. One of the most cringing, uh, this movie is like, if you're a parent, just like getting your guts twisted, it's, it's Koreeda. He just did two movies that were not his finest work, uh, one in France, one in Korea, and it's him back in Japan. And this, this is, this is up there. This is up there. Um, if you want to put shoplifters one step above everything else, I think that's fair, but this is on that level with I wish and our little sister and nobody knows. And all of those movies really knock out, knock out, knock out punch film. Fucking loved it. Awesome. I can't wait to see it. That was the one playing up against perfect days. So I yeah. get a chance to see at the festival. But so I got to see Perfect I'm Days glad. and you got to see Monster. Yeah, absolutely. Excited. Oh, so let's talk about the last day. It's funny. We just sort of ran over the good ones where it's like, these are great. <laughs> Go see them. Go see Monster. See pictures of ghosts. Uh, I think Monster, because he's a notable enough filmmaker, just keep your eye out it for it and it'll come across your streaming service, your desk, your local art house theater in some way pictures of ghosts hunt this one down so put put in set a google alert for it check your local theaters fucking email your local repertory theater and say i heard about this movie will you show it you know like campaign on behalf of this movie go out of your way to find it and get it it is it is worth it and it's a movie that i have no idea what its life is going to be if it didn't even get sold to netflix or HBO or something and just sort of disappeared into the festival ether, I would believe that's possible. So like fight to see that movie. You it know? feels like the kind of film that's definitely going to get picked up by good streaming services like Canopy, but also like the kind of film that like you're going to miss out if you don't see it on the big screen. I don't know if, if it's going to get picked up. It's the kind of movie that I feel like industry insiders see and say, who is this for? You know, like who wants <laughs> to see this, you know? It doesn't have Paul Dano making fart jokes with Pete Davidson, you know, like it's, you know, running around with their butts out, you know. Yeah, but I think it's the kind of movie that enough people are going to like it that, you know, they're going to know that there's an audience for it. You know, I I think you're wrong about that. I think I think it could easily disappear into nowhere. Um, But maybe Bakaru was popular enough that that he has some heat off of that. It'll be like Citadel, right? Like our own private movie that nobody else can. Yeah, the Adam McGoyan movie that's fucking great that I saw in Toronto, not at a uh, TIFF, but at Hot Docs that he doesn't let be seen. And it's I think it's his second best movie behind Sweet Hereafter. Yeah. Um, Now, the last one, we're going to talk about two of the other Phenomenal films of the festival. 
which are about kids in wartime Japan. What are the two movies, John? We saw them back to back. We saw um, Sukumoto's Shadow of Fire at night, late at night. And then the next morning we saw Miyazaki's new movie, The Boy and the Heron. And it was shouldn't have been shocking, but it was interesting that both of these films uh, deal with a young boy in wartime Japan. And, World War II. Yeah. Uh, and they are <laughs> movies that, you know, because we saw them right together, we kind of like group them together. In both our boys go on a magical journey there. where they have to defeat an arch villain. Right. Very different films, but with a similar kind of idea. No, Boy in, this is goes without saying. Boy in the Heron, Miyazaki's new film, is top shelf Miyazaki, which means it is among the greatest movies ever made. It is there in the spirited away, How's Moving Castle. As you pointed out, John, he's sort of mushed all of his movies into one movie. My Neighbor Totoro, it's Spirited Away meets My Neighbor Totoro meets How's Moving Castle meets Princess Mononoke. It is just all of them smushed. With even the, when, with even the when Rises gets to yeah. jump in there a little bit. <laughs> yeah, mushed into one. And it doesn't feel derivative of any of them. The closest, to, the one it comes closest to feeling derivative to for me is Spirited Away. But it's as good as Spirited Away, which is mm-hmm. a fucking insane thing to say about a movie. That is, that is, that is, you have loaded up a shotgun full of praise there. Like, don't point it at anybody's face. You know, like that is a very dangerous thing to say. And it's on that level of it. It's it's Pictures of Ghost, I think, was your and I's favorite movie of the festival. Yeah. The no. Boy and the Heron. Like, come on now. Like, yeah. even you and I have to be honest. Like, come on now. You know, <laughs> sure. And what I really love about this movie, there's so much to say. And I don't want to say too much because obviously everyone should go out and see it for themselves. And uh, thankfully, you know, places like Regal have deals with Ghibli where you, you'll definitely see this film if you want to. Um, and you definitely should see it more than once. And I can't wait for my family to see it. But like I, the, the sentiment of this film, try again, try not to spoil anything, but like that the kind of fantasy realm of this world that these characters enter is this place that is weirdly timeless in that like different versions of themselves younger older versions of themselves end up being there it just has this beautiful sentiment of what that kind of place could be it's not just like spirit away where it's like there are a bunch of weird frogs and stuff you know which is you know obviously spirit away is magical i'm not saying it's not but uh but this one like takes it to another layer where it's like dreams uh aspirations hopes uh, yeah fears everything just like uh, come together so magnificently in this reminiscence of awfulness that are like yes. recontextualized yeah no they're genuinely scary things in this movie you yeah know, like the best genuine. miyazaki it's scary it's funny it's weird it's exciting it's got the best action sequences of the year in it you know it's everything it's a miyazaki movie which is the best cinema can be you know, 100%. it's just top level with that. But here's the crazy but. If you see it right after Shadow of Fire, which is Sukamoto's movie about a boy surviving end of World War II, post-World War II world uh, that is so grim and violent and upsetting and features the most remarkable child performance I have ever seen in my life. This is this is remarkable. I'm not saying it's better than than Leoden 400 Blows, 
you know, I'm not, I'm not saying it's the best, but it's absolutely remarkable this kid's performance and what he's called on to do and this kinds of scenes he's called on to be in and the kind of material he's required to contend with uh, are stunning. And it's about how World War II in um, Japan turned everyone ugly and evil, how it morally corrupted and gnarled the entire populace of this country, how it, how it was a, a, like a demon of moral corruption spreading throughout the country that everybody's helpless to resist, that it's rape and prostitution and violence and starvation and murder and insanity and depravity and cruelty. Right. Um, and like despairingly beautiful attempts at kindness and connection and rebuilding, right? It's this incredibly complicated tone, all shot on Tsukamoto's signature VHS looking fucking digital, all shot looking like a trauma movie, you know, incredibly brilliant, talented filmmaker who is not ever going to let, um, oh, are the seams showing or not be the factor in how he makes his decisions and what he wants to get at immediate emotionally rich if you put this next to boy in the heron which is about a dad who's a war profiteer during world war ii and his rich private school son escaping to a fantasy land uh while helping the fascist it's a very strange thing you you watch <laughs> it like uh these are like the fucko villains that they're going to assassinate <laughs> in shadow of fire like these are the genuine personification of evil that persists in self-confidence within the structures of moral corruption they are the people that create the evil of the world and then survive unscathed by it right and so you watch it and you're like i don't know how i feel about this guy who's you know, selling fighter planes and bombers to the Japanese government and like his spoiled brat fucking military uniform son. Like, I I, I don't know how I feel about this. It ultimately, <laughs> you got to get over it. But watching it right after Shadow of Fire is like, you know, uh, this moment where it's like, okay, we got to get Mirai Moriyama and get him the pistol, get out there to this fire father's house. We got to go do that. Needless to say, in one of these films, the boy can save the woman. And in the other one, he cannot. He saves her by redeeming her humanity, even as she's dying of syphilis in Shadow of Fire. Are you talking about in Boy and the Heron, he can't save her? No, no, no. Yeah, obviously <laughs> does. Um, right. Anyway, we're giving away the endings. We should do that. Um, both. What we both said, both so, movies are so incoherent. And what we've said so nonsensical that it has not spoiled anything, I dare say. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm going to close with thoughts on Close Your Eyes uh, because uh, I haven't fully developed them. I know I, I, no question there, it was disappointing, but I don't know. I, I, I feel like I could, this is not even like a thing I feel like I can communicate. I like could see. Ariche reaching through that film. I felt like there were beautiful things in that film, even though it wasn't a great artistic accomplishment. 
I still felt a connection with that film that felt unique. And even though it didn't all work, I thought there were a lot of moments that did work. And so I I'd say I have at the very least a complicated reaction to that movie. That's not just based on me wanting it to be good because it's by one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. He made two of the greatest films of all time. I am willing to say it's like, you know, he did a TV miniseries and so it was kind of okay. <laughs> um, but I, I, I just, I feel like there were parts that like penetrated for me that obviously didn't for you, but I, I not willing to name, say name one of them, name one um, of the parts the scene, that penetrated. Uh, the scene where he finds the book that uh, he wrote and then inscribed to uh, someone, you know, in the used bookstore and goes and finds her. I think that that's, that's a nice scene. That's yeah. a nice scene. How long is that scene? Uh, well, combined with when he what were you shopping in the bookstore? It's about a five yeah. minute scene, I guess. No, it's about thirty five seconds, John. <laughs> Out of well, a then, well, Bay. you could say he extends to when he goes and finds her and talks to her and gives her the book back. That's a nice. That's a nice little back. scene. That's the best scene in the movie. Mm-hmm. That's the best scene in the movie. Where it he goes not... back home. Where he goes back home, and we see how his his beach. I was actually going to say. I bet you say the scene where she sings that little song. Yeah. No, that's well, that's the thing. When he goes back to the seaside town, the movie suddenly has life and vitality. And I thought, oh, this is going to be like what El Sir was supposed to be, where we now see him go back to his life and it feels alive now and it's going to work. I like that contrast between the deadness of the first half, the complete stillborn deadness, and now the vitality of his real life, his empty life that's the past and his real life. But then they only spend 10 minutes there. And again, that stuff is like fine. That stuff is fine. You know, that that stuff is not masterpiece stuff, John. It's not. And you know it's not masterpiece stuff. The way all of El Sur and Spirit of the Beehive are. That stuff is well, like, of course, okay. I, of course, I'm not going to, you know, even deign to you know, compare it to those two films in any way. Um, but I don't want to say it's trash. I don't want to say that he totally failed with it either. I don't think it's um, trash. I think it's a total failure. I don't think it's trash. I think it's like... You know, I think if any other filmmaker's name was on it, you would be taking the world's biggest shit on it right now. I think you'd be treating it like Limbo, 1,000%. Maybe. I But the comparison we made was the Cardboard Village. Cardboard right? Village, the Armano Olmi. Armano Olmi film uh, that we saw at TIFF a few years ago, which, you know, again, Armano Olmi, not quite Victor Riche, but you know, has made some phenomenal films. I'd I'd take Il Posto actually over either Spirit of the Beehive or Elsar. That's how much I like Il Posto, but that's the it's only one that's that's that high for me. Yeah, yeah, it's a great movie. Uh I'll say like well, like Refn would say yeah. it's great. Um but speaking of great directors. When I saw Cardboard Village, like I saw no hint of Olmi. His voice, his artistry, nothing. And it was a movie I wanted to leave. I didn't want to sit yeah. there and watch it. I never felt that throughout all three hours of Close Your Eyes. I was still invested and I still recognized Ariche in that film. So that's the difference. Mm, I saw me. no, I saw no Ariche in it, except for the one shot at the very beginning where they're opening the shutters and they're still filming on 35 in the movie within the movie. Yeah. I think I agree I think, to disagree. I, I I'm not closing my eyes. I don't think I don't think we're disagreeing. Things. I'm saying it's not that great, and you're saying it's not that great. <laughs> but Ariche <laughs> made it, so you're fine with it. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. 
Anyway, that was um, my thoughts on that. I think movie. it's malpractice if you tell anybody to see that movie because it reminds you of the other Ariche movies and you can hear his voice in it. I think you're actually doing something immoral to say that. <laughs> okay. Now you know why I was too cowardly to talk about <laughs> What? We can't disagree on stuff? I'm either a coward or I'm immoral. I don't know. <laughs> Neither of those are bad things. Um, so let's go. Here are my, these are the highlights of the festival for me. Uh, and then you have your highlights. They're going to be the same, virtually the same as mine. Mine are Coriata's Monster, about the uh, woman dealing with the psychotic teacher at her son's school. The Pigeon Tunnel, Aaron Morse's new documentary about John le Carre. Last summer, Catherine Brayat's movie with the plot of a porno. Uh, the Boy and the Heron, Miyazaki's new movie about a war profiteer and his, uh, you know, stuck-up son. Shadow of Fire about a delightful little boy and his handgun that he uses to avenge the deranged of, of what is he, war criminal? That's a fair way to describe that guy. His buddy, the war criminal. Um, and then uh, Pictures of Ghost, which is the movie about the making movies in Recife and the dying movie houses of Recife. And then the two that are sort of honorable mentions, let's not put them on the list of the best, are Ethan Hawke's Flannery O'Connor movie, Wildcat, and Anna Kendrick's uh, Rodney Alcala serial killer movie, Woman of the Hour. Yeah, and I like the Kendrick movie the more I think about it since the festival. I think it's a solid film. Yeah. Um, I'd say the same. I would add, of course, Vendor's Perfect Days with a fantastic performance by Koji Yakusho and uh, a week week in the life of his character in Japan, I um, Tokyo, and uh, Wiseman's uh, Mini Plaisirs Le Trogro, which is just, it's fucking Wiseman, man. What else do you want me to tell? <laughs> I was really, I don't know what else to say about it. Uh, besides that, um, anything else? Anything else? Uh, well, next goal wins. I'm sorry. I just got to say it's a fun movie and it's 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 enjoyable. There were movies uh, I, I liked. Like the... Apologizing, but you know it's good. Yeah, next goal wins. The convert was good. Hitman has its convert. virtues. There there were movies I saw that were were interesting. Even dumb money plays, but I don't think I put them on my my list of 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 the of the highlights. Would you say Tiff Twenty Three was finest kind or not? Finest kind. I think it was finest kind, John. Finest kind. Finest kind. Uh, I just, as, dis- I said, as I said to you, I really think it would be hilarious if Brian Hugland was just like, had some crew member who was like, you know what we all say in New England? Finest kind. We say all the time. You should put it in the movie. And he's like, oh, okay. That sounds good. And he's just totally <laughs> making it up. I would explain why they drop all mention of the word finest kind and it's not yeah, said at like all. Five. And the second half of the film <laughs> is finest kind free. But his fucking crueler talk heavy, eh? These are great cruelers over here. Now that's a fucking crueler. Ah, bada bing. I'm Frankie Umbada Chitrapelli. Um, yeah. So uh yeah. Closing thoughts on TIFF 2023. What do you feel about it? You and I had a serious conversation because of the kind of mess that it was in and the way that it's not geared towards press and industry anymore, the weakness of the scheduling, the the sort of messiness of how the PNI was scheduled, of not it's going musical. Yeah, of not going back next year and picking a different festival to go to. What do you think about that? Do you think we're going to go back next year? Or do you think we should seriously think about going to Berlin or Venice or something else instead? Only time will tell. I mean, I would definitely be open to it. I mean, we've been going to this thing for almost 20 years now. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we know it very well, you know. 
Yeah. Um, as much as I love going, you know, I would absolutely be open to trying something different, going to a different city and seeing how other film festivals, you know, well, I haven't been to as many as you have. And so it would be definitely an eye opening experience. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Thank you for listening, everybody. Uh, you know, go see uh, Pictures of Ghosts. Email your local repertory house saying, when are you showing Pictures of Ghosts? Email Netflix and saying, did you pick up Pictures of Ghosts? Get that movie out there. Campaign on its behalf. Second. <laughs> <laughs>